0: you're listening to our grind podcast coming to you from a fallout shelter on Manhattan's Upper East Side. I'm your host, Kim Power.
1: I'm Marshall Jones. Ton of fun.
0: (laughs) And tonight we're talking to Jason Vogel and throwing back some Sam Adams Oktoberfest beer. The art world is a complex animal One of the many arms of the beast includes the galleries in which artwork is seen, run by a unique blend of personalities who must balance business with creating an inspirational vision that hopefully serves both the artist and the artwork. Vogel, artist and curator, has consistently been a passionate advocate for artists' art making and the artistic process. Vogel's early days began in Southeast Asia, and he was the founding member of Republic Worldwide. His current role is part of a curatorial team that founded and runs the Lodge Gallery on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Vogel explains his philosophical and curatorial ethos, as well as his own personal worldview. Jason regaled us with tales of his auspicious birth, his time as a gymnast and musician, as well as his own artistic endeavors. A sort of Renaissance man of the art world, Vogel is a delightful storyteller who left us hungry for more. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, Jason. Yes, Jason. All right, let's do yeah, this. applause for
1: me. Yeah. And Marshalls here. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's
0: so good. That's
2: so great. Oh. Like a hype man God damn it! I was gonna save that for later. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: Boys and their toys no. just can't resist.
1: No. God, I feel so much better now though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm gonna, like get something like that and play in the morning when I wake up. Like get yeah. power. Yeah, she got up.
1: She's awake. <laughs> No, that's sort of what animals do in the house, though, right? They get excited when you wake up. Right. Kind yeah, of like why people like, have hey, pets. Have yeah. It.
3: Well, they have <laughs> such low memory retention. I don't know if they're just like. It almost appears to them as if they're waking up for the first time. That's right, yeah. <laughs>
1: that's
3: like, yeah. Oh my I God, this is so exciting. I'm alive.
0: That explains why my cat always thinks she's starving when she wakes up. <laughs> I, have I haven't the, eaten for years.
1: The most depressing story about like a dog's reality. If it's like on some. Radio show or something, and they were saying, like, when you leave the door and close it, a dog just knows that you left. And it's always in that moment of they just left. That's why they bark at the door for a Well like they assume hours. that you're just on
3: the other side of the door?
1: No, they just they just are in that moment exclusively like they left. So they bark and then they're like, they left. They bark and they just stay well, in that should, <laughs> like a, like a <laughs> and there's no concept of it's reverb. been like three it's hours. Like <laughs> it's just like eh, they're
0: gone.
3: <laughs> well, you know, in the dog's defense it doesn't have the same kind of prefrontal lobes that we have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a biological. Maybe problem. your dog. No, I'm
0: <laughs> just kidding. <laughs>
3: But this is not my dog. Do you have a dog? <laughs> uh, I do not have a dog. Um, I'm familiar with dogs, though. I had an old English sheepdog when I was growing up. Oh, and nice. uh, my brother has a dog. But I had a cat for like 14 years. I uh, uh, passed away recently. But uh, um, yeah, I know what you mean about being hungry every morning. Like, yeah. I never woke up and, and woke up my cat. Bo woke me up every single morning, pawing oh, yeah. my face.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> definitely a thing. Like, I don't have to set the alarm. I've got these bars on my bed, and she clonks her head. It's a new bed, so now she learned. If I clonk my head against the bars, I'll <laughs> go, ding, and she'll be wide awake. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So... We were wondering about um, speaking of your dog and your childhood. We were wondering about um, I came out your fully life filmed. in Southeast Asia. Oh, because, Southeast Asia! Yeah, I, I mean, you always.
3: <laughs> know that
0: you lived there. What was the reason why you were there? Was it your parents were? Um, well, obviously, as a child, that's the case. But
1: you didn't.
2: You didn't know uh, yeah, there. Yeah, I, was, I was working for. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you packed your bags. Working for Goldman Sachs. <laughs>
0: I You know, I almost, I was
1: seven years almost old. believe that because
0: you are such a Renaissance man. I think that that would be possible. But So why, why were your parents in Southeast Asia? What were they doing there?
3: Uh, well, first of all, I, I went to elementary school in Hong Kong. Okay. And then in 1986, I moved to Taiwan to, go, to finish middle school and then high school. I graduated from high school from there. And then uh, shortly after that, my parents moved to Singapore and lived there for about 22 years. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, so when I'd go back, I'd go back to different places and stuff and go visit. And, you know, uh, most of the international community lives off of like three to five year cycles. So, you know, every time I'd go back, there'd be less people I knew and have to build new kind of friendships and stuff. All when right. I go back there now, it's, it's just a completely different world. Right. Um, for example, when I moved to Taipei in 1986, it was still under martial law. There were you know, soldiers with guns in every corner and like, the wow. goose-stepping like, parades of missiles down the street. Wow. I think uh, Chiang Kai-shek's grandson was still in charge, and Madam Chiang Kai-shek was still there.
1: And what, what grade were you in?
3: Uh, the seventh grade.
0: Seventh grade.
1: Wow.
3: Uh, wow. Well, halfway through the seventh grade, and then... Um,
0: were you in some sort of international school? Yeah, they there? were all
3: international okay. schools. Okay. Hong Kong International yeah. School, and then Taipei American School which uh, had a uh, charter. It was the only international school there. In Hong Kong, there's lots to choose from. There's like the French school and the German school and stuff because it was uh-huh. British. But uh, America doesn't officially recognize Taiwan, or it didn't after Nixon anyways. So okay. it was through an American institute there that the international school was able to form. Okay. Mm. Although I would say that in Taiwan, there were far less Americans in the American school than there were Americans in the Hong Kong International School. Oh, really? Which there were plenty of. Huh. huh. So, but anyway... Uh, yeah, my dad grew up in a similar way. He um, he grew up in Japan and Germany and Turkey. Oh,
0: like an army brat? Like or? Or? He was
3: an army brat, yeah. Okay.
0: Okay.
3: My grandfather was like uh, Army Corps of Engineers.
0: Okay, so was your dad in the army too then? or
3: uh, Is, hmm, that, why, is that why that? you... Oh. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> was, was I'll you tell spy? you this. You, if,
0: are there something you can't tell us?
3: <laughs> I, well, it's just all that... <laughs> nah. okay that part complicated. we'll
0: just skip over that <laughs> no then. no,
3: no, no it's not like that uh it 's just that my dad my dad was on track to be a career military officer and had an accident and oh, lost wow. one of his legs Oh,
4: wow so
3: when he was about nineteen twenty years old, he was in an accident, lost his leg already okay. uh, in
1: the military at night nineteen
3: uh at college going head of the r o t c going into okay. the military as an officer okay. when he graduated but um yeah, so he lost his leg, and um, that created some weird uh, situation with the family because they're all very military army guys forever on that oh, side. Right. So he got in a car, drove across the country to Boise, Idaho, which is as far away as he could go.
1: So where was he originally from then? I mean, where was he living oh, at the
3: time? Oh, sorry. Uh, when my grandparents, uh, when my grandfather retired from the army, he moved back to uh, Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. It's a okay. military base there with. Oh. Um, an officer's club and all sorts of the the accoutrements of a retired military officer. Uh, So he was there for probably like uh, six months before the accident happened. Wow. Um, Anyway, he left and he went out west and just tried to like make a a new different kind of life. To Idaho. Um, And went to Idaho and bumped into my mom in college at Boise State, Hmm. which by the way, Matthew Barney went to. Filmed yeah. the first Master series on the Smurf turf there. Oh, really? Yeah. If you ever watched the first Master series, you're like, "Wow, this guy did an incredible like amount of work with like almost no budget. How did he? How did he make a blue football field? Right. <laughs> you go you go to Boise State, and they're like, if you know anything about football, which I don't, so don't ask me any questions about it. But one thing I do know is that Boise State's uh, football field is blue, and that's where uh, Matthew Barney went to college too. Strangely oh. enough, production, okay. Boise Man. State. Yeah, yeah. So I met my mother, and um, uh, I was born.
0: Congratulations!
3: Thanks. Very, I, good. <laughs> I Very good. I didn't. I really good didn't job. do much.
0: Wait, there's a story. <laughs> Wait, yeah, about he, your... you
1: told me that story at the Salvagundi Club. Remember that night?
3: I remember that night too. I was we had so, many so sick when I woke up next <laughs>
1: morning. Yeah, but you went into that story.
3: It was it, uh, yeah. I don't know. My um, yeah. My my whole mother's side of the family all love to tell stories and are, are really good at, um, like piling it on. So I don't know how much of it is true. Cause I, like I was just born, but apparently, you know, my mother, um, was in labor with me for three days. Was this the story I was telling you about and my, my great grandmother telling my mother that there was like some like special purpose or destiny for me? Yes. By the way, my, my, my great grandmother at that point had been dead for like 15 years and my mother had a vision of her ghost coming to visit her on the third day. Wow. And wow. the ghost is who told her.
1: Of your great grand? Because I remember the grandmother part. Well,
3: too. that's my mother. It was my mother's grandmother.
1: Okay, your mother's grandmother.
3: My yeah. mother's grandmother came to her and told her the vision. Of all this, of, of like something, and, like she could never tell me, or it wouldn't come true. So, like, I don't know if that was some sort of wow. like control mechanism that my mother invented for me. <laughs> like,
4: you have it's a special destiny.
3: You, you have a special destiny if you behave yourself. I can't tell you what it is. Oh, it won't come oh, true. true. I am loving
0: that. That's
1: religion, right? That's the whole <laughs> basis
3: of. <laughs> yeah, okay, voila. Yeah, so, um, so that was crazy. So, I was born in a town called uh, Jerome, Idaho population like 200 people, the middle of frickin' nowhere, uh, near the craters of the moon, if you've ever been to, uh, you know, south-south central Idaho. It all just sounds so <laughs> like, epic, like, like would be there. prophecies I, I never
1: and blue grass and the craters of the moon.
3: Well, you want to hear crazier, so, <laughs> so check it out. So, like, my dad was, uh, teaching history, um... Which is probably where I get my love for history, because he was a big historian. He also spoke, like, ten languages, so he could read things in their original, like, text and stuff like that. Wow. But he was teaching history to just these, like, you know, uh, ki- people of all different ages in the middle of, of freaking nowhere. And uh, met Jack Simplot, who was the inventor of the frozen french fry. He If you go to Boise, Idaho, in oh, the Idaho, middle of I'm downtown sure. Boise uh, uh, is a hill... Uh, that's the highest point in Boise and that's where Jack Simplot's house is and there's like the Simplot flag and then the American flag and then the boy the state state of idaho flag
0: and then a big French fry or- no no <laughs> well
3: here 's the thing. Jack Simplot was kind of like an eccentric uh creative guy who'd had many businesses that had succeeded and failed and stuff like that. He invented the frozen French fry and immediately became like a billionaire and went um well, not a billionaire, but whatever you were back in like the sixties or the seventies right when, when you, you you know came up with something interesting. <laughs> But anyway, he was a, sort of an eccentric guy. He would he would walk around with, like, no shoes on, with, like, just jeans, overalls, and a big, scraggly beard. Wow. And uh, he and my dad got along because they could, I think he was also interested in traveling and in stories and stuff like that. And uh, through that, uh, my dad started working for companies like McDonald's and Coca-Cola and a little bit with the U.S., uh, government capacities that I was way too young to understand so I can't really fill you in on the details but I do know that a lot of his job was uh, traveling to South America originally and then exclusively to Southeast Asia to help uh, develop post-war countries, post-war meaning post-World War II or post um, like communist revolution stuff and all all the different kinds of post-war shit that was going on um, in the 70s in Southeast Asia. Huh. He was trying to help convert those countries into British parliamentary democracies with American-style economic systems. Uh-huh.
4: Okay. So it wasn't just him Not by himself. Task. It was a team of
3: guys that would all go in and like... Like sort know, of
1: Reagan-era economics?
3: Uh, but it was before Reagan even they started this, oh, wow. uh, this expansion. I think it had a lot to do with the idea of, of what happened with Vietnam and like g- going to war with foreign places as opposed to um, the, I don't know. I, I want to. Some some people would say infiltrating their culture, yeah, I <laughs> or Westernizing their culture. But right, I was thinking about
0: that, or colonialism.
3: Eh, it was less about colonialism than it was about <laughs> creating global branding standards for things in a world where they could foresee uh, people who were once enemies becoming consumers of their products. Mm. Yeah. Um,
0: so and very it capitalistic also also it had you- to do
3: with elevating the living standards of of the people in these post war countries because most of them like the Philippines was run by Marcos and his like mafia style. It, it, like the, the president of the Philippines right now is very similar to Marcos's approach. You know, he was just like this military dictator
4: mm-hmm.
3: who like took over the country. Um, so a lot of it was just ne- doing negotiations to set those things up and then going in afterwards to teach the farmers how to grow products to the global branding standards of the companies so they could buy locally And create this two-way economic stream and help get the economies of these countries going. That was how we ended up in Hong Kong. And then um, in 86, my dad had a new idea for a different business and moved to Taiwan. And there were some ups and downs. It was weird because he was kind of on his own. Okay. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I lived in, in Taiwan. I lived in a fishing village called Damshui. It was about an hour outside the city. And I'd ride in with my dad to work every morning. To
0: go to school?
3: To go to school, where wow. everybody else lived downtown.
0: Oh, wow. So, so um, you were kind of outside on the perimeters.
3: Yeah, plus because my dad didn't work for any major corporation or anything like that, um, the schooling was quite expensive, so my mother worked for the school. She actually became the chairman of uh, the International School Board. Oh, okay. So my brother and I could go to the international school and, um, and stuff like that.
1: But you were born in Idaho. How long did you stay in the United States? How old were you when you left for Asia?
3: Five, five, six, okay, something like that. Wow. Yeah. yeah very and then
0: young. and then you left Asia to come here to study art, or oh, yeah, why no, could, uh, I'm just I'm wondering why you couldn't study painting there. Like, was there no school? Was there nobody? Uh,
3: well there's there was Su Chow University. there was no higher education schools in Taiwan in for English, and my Chinese was so bad. Um, there was a school called Su Chow University that my friend Leif 's mother uh, worked at um, that I would go to often um, That's that's where I learned some of of my first explorations into comparative religions and stuff like that. Oh.
4: Oh.
3: But then Pratt Institute came to uh, visit Taiwan. Okay.
4: Um,
3: The president at the time of the school and his wife went on this world tour with like Pratt money. Oh, wow. And uh, eventually, he got uh, he was fired for doing this <laughs> because he was just he just like overspent like the budget by like tenfold. <laughs> like he and, he and his wife must have just been like, you know, I don't want to go back there. Let's just like max out the credit card and fly around the world. God.
4: Oh my god!
3: So anyway, my best friend growing up over there, another one of my best friends growing up over there, Nick Booth who's an amazing painter. He lives in in uh, Sydney now. He's French, and uh, he introduced me to painting. And we would take classes with a professor named. Uh, Kathy Wu at Taipei American School, who gave us, like, oil paints and canvas and started off, us off on, like, the good stuff. Cool. And got us addicted to it. So by the time I was, like, a junior in high school, we were already, like, trying to, like, hustle shows, at, like, the French Institute and, oh, wow. like, you know, Mary's Hamburger and shit like that to put our paintings up.
1: Ah, oh, so cool. And, uh,
3: you know, by that time, we'd also discovered, like, the Ramones and the Dead Kennedys and, um, uh, you know, a lot of, like, European punk, too.
1: Was that hard to come by in Taiwan?
3: Oh, yeah. So it's funny because all the music I had was just on, like, uh, mixtapes on unmarked cassettes. (laughs) So, like, I knew, like, all the Misfits songs, but I had no idea who the Misfits were or, like, what they looked like or anything. Oh, wow. Um,
0: Well, how did you get a hold of the music then?
3: People would bring it. Uh, I remember in uh, my sophomore year, I met uh, Leif Solem, who was from New York. He grew up here. And uh, he was the lead tenor in the St. John the Divine Choir School. And I think that scarred him because he spent the rest of his life trying to, like, slowly destroy himself. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But he is definitely one of the smartest and most talented people I ever met uh, to this day. But he he brought... The Velvet Underground and the Ramones. Oh, Velvet Underground. And a couple of other big New York bands. And, like, they just transformed my life. I was like, I'm moving to New York. That's where I want to go. And Nick was like, we're moving to New York. And Pratt came and gave us, like, I don't know. They just let us go to Pratt and gave us, like, a small, like, stipend or whatever. And we're like, okay, we don't have to apply anywhere else. If you guys are taking us, that's where we're going. Neither of us had ever (laughs) been to New York before. So, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, Velvet Underground had a similar impact on me from, it was like... Thirteen, fourteen, getting that uh, the Andy Warhol, you know, Velvet Underground and Nico, and just that really sim- similar to you, kind of opened me up to a lot of stuff. It was like Venus and Birds was like, holy crap,
3: I never heard a song like and that it's before. Like, what are they talking about? <laughs> yeah, it seemed a little so. scary, you know, but really cool. <laughs> yeah, well, they had it had that. The, the, darkness and the kind of melancholy that a teenager just loves. Yeah, totally. I think
0: Absolutely. velvet on the Ground was a gateway drug for a lot of people. Yeah,
3: <laughs> probably, probably specifically like creative people
1: who have like a little, a dark proclivities, you know? Right. Definitely. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, here's a story about Never Meet Your Heroes. I met Lou Reed once. Did you? Um, oh. Wow. Well, I've, I've actually had the chance to meet him twice, but one time I was sitting right next to him. I don't know what year it was. It must have been, like, 1993, 1992. And I was just walking around the West Village and sat down to have a coffee at some, like, you know, place that had tables outside or something like that. And I ordered my coffee, and I was sitting there drinking it. I looked over, and it was Lou Reed, like, just oh sitting there. God. And like a normal this was be- person. This was before, like, cell phones and stuff like yeah. that. So it wasn't like he was just chatting. He was just sitting there, like, staring off into space. <laughs> <laughs> like and the waitress studio. came over, and he ordered uh, a salad with no salad dressing but lemon slices on the side and, like, some diet mocha crap of Frappuccino. <laughs> and I was just like, what? It's like Lou. Lou's a yuppie? What? <laughs> yeah.
0: All your illusions chatter uh, with one salad.
3: You should be just shooting uh.
1: heroin and, like...
3: <laughs> I was, yeah, like, all the pint of whiskey and a bowl of heroin flakes, or, like, I don't know. I don't know how heroin comes. Does it come in flake form? <laughs>
2: Like a real human being. You should have tasted the salad. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Oh yeah, didn't eat the salad. That's
0: why I didn't eat the salad. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> that was like code word for it, you.
2: Know?
3: <laughs> well, so so much of uh, coming to New York, having never been here before, was based on like uh, all me and my friends just watching movies or hearing stories from Leif yeah. about what New York was like. But he remembered it from the '80s and because um, they had just ended and everything was just in the movies. It was still that gritty New York, and, like, the fantasies of, like, Andy Warhol's factory still happening, and, like, the Ramones, it's, like, taken front stage at CBs, and, like, yeah. by the time I got here, I'd missed that by, like, ten years. So you yeah. were, like, catching
0: up, like, in a time, time lag, time-lapse sort of thing.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, for all the disappointment that I had, that all that stuff had, had passed me by before I got here, there was all sorts of crazy stuff going on back then. I mean, the Lower East Side was, like, a shit show. I mean, there was... Yeah, there's all still the a lot squatter of villages the lower East side. and right, and it was yeah. New York City was pretty rough. I mean, Times Square was still like the porno theaters and like the freak shows and stuff like that. Yeah, for yeah. Disney and everything. Amistable. Did you have a
2: culture shock? Because uh, yeah. Because I'm looking at the uh, images of your the university right now, and it looks beautiful. It's, it has uh, mountains. Oh, uh, Sucho? Yeah, su- Chow.
3: I used to go sit by the river with Leif, and uh, we would write songs. It was like my first venture into music. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's so great.
2: So
0: are you like it's right a vocalist? right at the base of the Mountain Yaman Yeah. That's
3: Playing guitar or? Oh, no. I would, you know, write my own songs. Sometimes I would sing, but I'm a drummer. Oh, cool. Yeah. Wow. But I I don't really play music with anybody outside that small group of people. We used to have a, late, many years later, uh, after I moved to New York in like the early 2000s, I moved back to New York and we started a band and we toured around a little bit. But, uh, I don't know, it was never my like full calling. It was something I did for fun. Okay. With my friends, and I love doing it, but I always would get pulled back into the art world eventually.
0: But also, like, you had this sideline where you were like a world class gymnast, too, Marshall was saying that? <laughs>
4: What? When was that? You like? know, when you hear your happening? life from other people, it's just—it
3: starts to sound more and more ridiculous. No, just, no, no, people have suggested I write all this stuff out. down into a book, and I've tried that. But when I look at it all, it's just like, no, that—that's not real. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I know I can't. When when I think about your life and the stories we, you drunkenly told me, it, it does feel very <coughs> like epic and sort of, like either. Folky tall tales or uh, this life.
3: I try not to <laughs> embellish them too much. It was, it's ridiculous enough as it is. I promise you. So, but
0: when did uh, that yeah. happen?
3: D- gymnastics was probably the most transformative thing. Hang on, if I'm going to talk about gymnastics, I'm going to start drinking the whiskey. All right, oh, and I'm
1: sorry. Sorry. we need to have an applause or some sound there. For <laughs> <laughs>
3: Good whiskey, thank okay. you. Exactly. Um.
2: Anyway, uh,
3: yeah. So when I was in Hong Kong, uh, I was on the uh, the Hong Kong international team, um, like under 18. We competed by traveling all over Southeast Asia and um, did the opening ceremonies, like the Pan Am Games and all sorts of crazy stuff. But uh, I started that when I was pretty young. And uh, by the last several years, uh, I would get on a bus after school every day, so I didn't get the like have like a normal like after school life like most kids Mm. Uh, my team would get on a bus after school and we would go out to um the jubilee sports center in the new territories which took about 45 minutes to an hour to drive to and then once you're there it was about an hour of uh, breathing exercises and yoga uh conditioning visualization exercises Uh, And then, you know, train for, like, three hours, and then about half an hour, 45 minutes of wind down with more breathing exercises and, like, yoga and stuff. That's intense. Wow. Um,
0: So when... Because gymnast is, like, a wide-ranging term. What specifically were you doing?
3: Oh, well, it's just, you know, contemporary competitive gymnastics. I mean, by the standards of what you would watch someone do on television now, and what, like, it's just insane what they're doing now. Um, Like, the compulsory exercises uh, at the... uh, in, on any level were like the most sophisticated stuff that we were doing back in the 80s okay huh. but um, skateboarding
1: kind of did the same thing yeah
3: it just went somehow like when, when I was a kid, it
1: was just like things were hard and it was like oh I could do a kickflip or whatever and that was impressive and I YouTube this stuff actually with, with Corey a lot and the things people are doing now it blows my mind
3: it's like, insane right that, just I mean, the escalation in talent and fearlessness I guess some combination but more for the uh, resonance, It's like morphic resonance.
0: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Again, morphic resonance is happening.
3: In gymnastics, there's there's several events. As a team, you're competing as a team, so everyone on the team has to do all of the events. I think that there's you can you can have one person on the team sit out like one event or something like that. Like I never really did the rings because I was. Uh, smaller stature, and I just didn't have the upper body uh, strength to, to do the rings like some of the larger guys on the team could. Okay. Uh, but I did mostly parallel bars and the floor exercise and the vault and okay. and uh, all, those kinds of st- all those kinds of things. The high bar, which is always fun. Huh. Parallel bars are the
1: two kind of staggered bars where you...
3: No, that's for no. the girls. That's okay. the uneven bars. The, the parallel uneven, bars okay. are the two bars that are parallel But it makes sense. (laughs) We (laughs) call (laughs) staggered (laughs) bars. Marshall Jones, everybody. So I'm going to fast forward because
0: you went to. I I will say this about
3: gymnastics, though. The the only reason I, you know, I ventured into that talking about that was that um, later on in my life, the idea of visualization and breathing exercises and seeing things in your mind's eye, and then training your body through muscle memory to execute the things that you can see in your head before you do them. Right. Massive when I started painting. It was huge because it wasn't just arbitrary uh, anymore. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of like early experimentation you do in painting where it's like, you know, splashing things or trying to control things or the back and forwards. But uh, having an idea about what I wanted to do and then getting myself in the right mind state and then seeing it first and then going about it was like oh. Wow, that's interesting to, to me. Paint. So, so are, you,
1: are you the type of painter who tries to achieve what was in your mind? Or do you have an image and you just try to honor that image and let it go wherever it's going to go?
3: So my approach to painting is, I don't know, I, I guess you could say that even from the very beginning, uh, the end result of the painting was never as important to me as the process or the ritual of doing it.
1: I'm like that, too.
3: Um, I I felt from a very young age that uh, the, the best kind of uh, spiritual or higher-level conceptual th- thinking you could do was through the ritual process. Uh, maybe it was because I was interested in religions and stuff like that, and right. I always felt like for the people who were involved in the most sincere believers in all the vast different religions I grew up around, um, it wasn't so much the narrative of the stories of the myths of the religions that were important to them. It was actively carrying out particular rituals. Right. So yeah. that if I could come up with my own set of rituals, I could find my own path uh, to that kind of harmony that other people could find in like, or, like you know, pre-existing Organized Religions. Uh-huh. So my, my paintings would, like, I would visualize what I wanted. I'd make a couple of passes at it and, like, let the whole thing dry and then set it aside and work on something else. And then I would come back, you know, staring at it and looking at it the whole time.
0: This is oil paints? It's oil paints. Okay. And then I would
3: come back in um, after having looked at it for a while and thinking of, like, where I wanted it to go and then erase out probably, like, two-thirds of it, hmm. leaving specific icons and images in there and then going back how, in. How,
1: how cell racing like... Using white just, over no, it? No, just painting it over it. Just painting over it,
3: got it. Mm-hmm. So they started to build up and build up and build up. So you could almost see the evidence of the underlying forms. Yeah, like strata. On oh, top nice. it. was like they're pretty thick and heavy paintings. Yeah.
4: Um,
3: but those, I did that for a long time. And a lot of them were just sort of, uh, you know, that learning how to push and learning when to give. That whole sort of like I want I have this vision I can see it I visualized it now I'm gonna have to have this conversation with this thing where it's gonna tell me a little bit about where it wants to go too because it's almost like uh like a, a you know there's me and and then I don't know maybe I have this dislocated feeling from the paintings or the paintings have a life of their own too and if like I try and force things as I want them to go, so much in life. It's
0: going to push in the other direction. It's going to push
3: back. It's more Taoist than anything, you know, that whole idea of, like, if you fight against the current, um, you know, you're just going to struggle as you go downstream, but if you just lay back and let the waters take you, um, you're going to drown in that water anyway, so (laughs) you might (laughs) as well enjoy the ride. (laughs) Yeah, right?
1: (laughs) It's kind of a stoic idea, too, just, like, being, this is what this thing is, this is what this wants to be, and I'll just facilitate it or be around for it you know
3: well i would push sometimes and then it would push back and they would go back and forth until i felt like the whole thing had just kind of resolved and like i'd come to an agreement with the painting that this is what the painting was going to be like it got i got i got my voice in there and it got its voice and it was sort of a collaboration with the great mystery or something
1: but it does sound like a real beautiful mix to me of Foresight, visualization and then being open to chance and and all that sort of thing in the process I think that's really important that I think a lot of artists find a hard time myself included like striking a balance between your vision and then letting it become what it wants to be you know
3: especially for um for painters like yourselves uh you know I mean, I suppose my stuff was all representational, too. I did some abstracts stuff early on, just experimenting with, like, you know, all all the fun formal things, color and, you know, dimension and form and all the uh-huh. standard stuff. But, you know, when you're making a painting like this, Marshall, it's like there's there's a certain amount of that play you can have back and forth, but because it's so representational, it commands such an attention to the craftsmanship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like a much more difficult challenge than the one I had to face <laughs> it,
1: is, it is especially the more like detailed mine get they get closed up to where there's not a ton of room to for accident because it's like you're there's little landmines everywhere like little pockets of detail that that demand attention, you know? And it's like, where do you fit that in on something like that, you know?
3: I don't know if you guys have felt this, but one of the biggest obstacles I had to overcome was just being fearless about editing out the things that I really liked for the greater, for the larger whole. Sacrifice your darlings. Sacrifice your darlings for the bigger picture, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, All these things no... sound like, I mean, we're talking about painting, but they could just as easily be talking about life lessons, right? Oh, That's yeah. right. Yes, they are life <laughs> it lessons. Is, yeah, I think, I think... I keep going back to that because there's so much about that for me. Being an artist for me is like creating your own mythic you know, story through, through time. So I,
1: think, I yeah. think you can become... This sounds so sort of pie in the sky, but I think you can... The things that you have to learn to be an artist can actually make you a better person. You know, like figure drawing so much uh, from life, like the idea that you sit in front of a model and if you have any judgments or preconceived notions, those aren't necessarily helpful to facilitating that task of just capturing someone. And so in a way, you just practice sitting down every day in front of something a model and just asking it questions and receiving information and shelving judgment and it's like ego, through that process ego, ego has to go yeah and, and you just find yourself not doing that in everyday life. It, like, creeps in,
3: you know? Doesn't it sound of... like you're talking about meditation? <laughs> yeah, I think that's it, very it's very similar. I think that the ritual process is meditation. I yeah, think totally. When you're in that zone, and I think all of you know this feeling of being in the zone and time goes away and you don't know how long you've been there for and you're just working away and you're, right. there's, like, you could be, you could have this whole inner dream world happening in your mind while your body is almost autonomously doing things. Yes, yeah. That, that... That it—that's dharma. That's the Buddha, the Buddha state, right? It's like yeah. you're yeah. only in the moment. There's no past. There's no future. You're just perfectly in the here and now, in the moment, interacting with the mystery. And to
1: Absolutely. what you brought up earlier, you're more facilitating what that moment wants to be rather than imprinting on it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I, like we were talking with uh, James Adelman earlier, and the, idea the guy has that an excellent beard. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> It's so much harder to do that for me now than it was before I had, like, an iPhone and stuff because I'm constantly interrupted, and he was saying he just, like, turns his phone off for hours at a time, and I can't imagine doing – I feel like I have so many demands that come through that box that, like – Anytime I get close to a flow, now it's just like something's ringing. And well, James, James
3: doesn't start painting until like four o'clock. In the I night. know. His right. studio you. is in like a basement with no phone reception, right. so he's he's got the he's got the cards stacked against you. Yeah, exactly. But
0: also, that's like the benefit of doing plein air. It's like I turn off yeah, my phone. I'm out there. In fact, the last time I was painting plein air I was painting this tree, and I just really had. Was oh, that the
3: one that was just on the, the internet? Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, thank really you. Pretty. Well, I, I just. Had such a connection with this tree, and interestingly enough, there was a guy who came every day and meditated at the tree. Oh my god! At the same time, so finally one day I just introduced myself, and and he and I was like, so beautiful that you're sitting there meditating, and I'm doing the painting, and it's feeling the same way. And he's like, I totally was on the same wavelength. I was thinking that, and I wanted to introduce myself to you, and like, we're sharing this wow. energy together. It's just a beautiful experience.
3: That's awesome.
2: Yeah, that is so
1: like. I just zen. That's a zen. A zen <laughs> yeah, on crack. That's
3: about as zen as
0: you can <laughs> be. appreciating this Zen dream. on
1: crack. <laughs> <laughs> crack zen. <laughs> All right, so let's have a little break. I need to get a beer. So.
0: Sounds good. <laughs> so, so we're you're? back
1: with Jason... Uh, Vogel. And Vogel, and you were just talking about um, being an ordained minister.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, the jump there! <laughs> I did that for an art project. Next question. Was it <laughs> wait, was it was it an internet thing? Just it was an internet thing, absolutely. <laughs> so Not you can problem. marry people? No, I didn't do it to do that. Uh, I actually was supposed to do that one time, and it just didn't happen. Uh, apparently, I let my my standing with uh, the quote unquote Universal Life Church. Um, Uh, lag behind, and I didn't, I, I, at the time, my ordination wasn't up to date. You have to keep updating it and doing stuff and sending money to these crazy people to do it. So it's a pyramid scheme? I did it for an art project that I did. So I, and like I said, I was a painter, but for a long time I was also just doing site-specific installations.
0: Is that from um, the Amsterdam school? Because they're very... The Reitfeldt Academy? Oh, the Reitfeldt,
3: yeah. No, Rietveld? I, I love yeah. that school. I, I studied mostly painting there. Oh, okay. Um, okay.
0: Uh, Sorry, but yeah. so you were doing installations?
3: and Yeah, I don't know where I was going with all that stuff. Sorry, but yeah, I, I ended up doing of... um, site-specific installations. What was the point of me going there? You asked me. Oh, about the ordination, right? Right. So um, a lot of those things were ephemeral. They had uh, lifespans. They were about um, illustrating myths in weird ways. Um, mostly by using uh, hand-carved potatoes that I would give nickel and copper wings to and run into giant series batteries. (laughs) They would power LED boards that would count backwards. And when things died, they would trigger other things to turn on. And um, at the end, it was just a sloppy mess because it was just these nasty, rotten potatoes. And all the wires and LEDs and everything uh, were all corroded, and I'd have to just throw it all uh, in the garbage. (laughs) Wow. Because it would create a beautiful will like like carry an
1: electric current right
3: yeah there's electrolytes in potatoes, and uh, you know so the, I would have to go in the day of the show and sit <laughs> on the floor and carve like 232 potatoes uh, into like one of them I did was it was an illustration of one of the stories from the Book of Enoch about uh, the watchers and the Nephilim and like, the the,
1: the um, Is that apocryphal, Enoch?
3: Well, uh, yes, it is. Well, it is in the Catholic tradition, but it's it's part of canon in um, the J- Jewish expen- expanded folklore. Okay. Because <laughs> it's not Protestant.
1: Uh, it's not in the... It's, it,
3: there's only one reference to uh, Enoch in the Christian Bible. It's one okay. sentence. Enoch goes uh, to heaven like Ezekiel does um, and mm-hmm. never comes back. So it's this weird... Epic story of this yeah, guy th- th- interacting, th- so learning all the stories from the angels and the gods and stuff like
4: huh.
3: that, or not from the gods, but what sort of half man, half gods. The story of this one piece was that you know there's these watchers who are watching during the, uh, uh, Michael and Lucifer are fighting the great war in heaven. Um, Lucifer has taken a third of, of the angels and is fighting against Michael with the remaining two thirds. And there's these watchers; their job specifically is to just watch over the earth. And watch the human beings and observe, but never interact with them. Oh,
0: there's but, um, some sci-fi that's based on
3: that. The this the heavens are distracted by the great war, huh. and uh, they conspire to go down. This is a very abbreviated version of this story, but they they conspire to go down um, and take wives from the women of the earth, and they do just that. And it's like it fills in a great gap in. Um, in the the early myths of the judeo Christian tradition, in the sense that all other religions east west they all have these mythological stories about like the first weaver and the first metalsmith and the first uh, farmer or the first whatever you know right. and there 's very little of that um, there's very little explanation of how all these, these things come to place. Things tend to jump through time in the Judeo-Christian tradition, so, like, it's just a given that somehow someone had figured that stuff out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in this case, the angels come down, and each coupling with a human wife, so it's a marriage of uh, in, beings of light and beings of dirt, basically, of the material world. Zeus would do that, too. Yeah. it's. I mean, well, so much of all of this stuff comes out of pre- earlier, yeah, yeah. You know, pre-existing things. But, um... Anyway, so, uh, you know, you get, like, the first sculptor and the first musician and all of these different kinds of stories that happen. And then uh, as you get closer and closer to the deluge, the great flood myth right. with Noah, Noah's, like, 900 years old when the flood comes. I don't know any 900-year-old people who led perfectly beautiful lives. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but according to the Book of Enoch, anyways, the reason that Noah's chosen to be the new Adam is because uh, not because he's a great or good person but it's because he can trace his bloodline back to Adam without ever having coupled with any of the offspring of these
4: oh this blasphemous God. marriage oh. of these people
3: um, in fact you know if you you must be familiar I don't know how familiar you guys are but you grew up with religion yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Um, there's the giants of old um, even um, Goliath being gigantic, that all refers to these offspring of the angels of light and the the first women of the earth having the first children who started off really good in inventing all these things but just became abominations and monsters. And the purpose of the flood was to completely erase all of that out and leave just one man left with his family that was a pure family that was connected to Adam without being connected to any of the other impure bloodlines. Oh,
0: that sounds a little racist.
3: Welcome to Judeo-Christian history. <laughs> <laughs> this is this, these are the same these are the same people who um, believe in a benevolent God who told them to go murder every man, woman, child, animal, any anything that, that breathed when they conquered, uh, you know, conquered cities and took land. So, but no, you know, but take, Noah, that, take that with a with a grain of salt.
1: There's right. a lot yeah. of darkness in those a stories salt. too, because his why his daughters got him drunk. And and had had sex with him essentially, oh, yeah. right? To uh,
3: propagate the human race. To propagate
1: the human race. Oh yeah. So what, that. What,
0: what's wrong I with that? that? Doesn't it? The, uh, to keep the bloodline pure. Yeah, totally.
3: Well, it's no more bizarre than the stories of. I mean, there's all sorts of weird apocryphal stories. Oh, oh yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> I was I was thinking more of uh, the stories of Adam and Eve and and Cain. Um, uh, and and like where did Cain get his wife from where did these cities come all, all the crazy stuff that doesn't make any sense because it's not real it's their their minutes their it's not alleg- real <laughs> Depends on who you ask. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Ask, fake news. Well, the fake Bible, news. The yeah, yeah. Actually, go well. on record saying that the Bible is fake news.
0: <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Although but,
3: I will say that there are some greater truths in the Bible than any than you could ever like like pull from reading it as a, a literal interpretation oh of history. My God,
1: yeah. I mean, and I would
3: say that much about everything. Um,
1: like in Hunter S. Thompson, too. You know, like it's like. You can, all, you can always tell a more profound truth through extreme means, it seems like, than you can't just... I walk down the street and talk to a person, you know. Um, but it, it is interesting because you have such a intense foundation in that. Do you think kind of being um, your, your upbringing, sort of how you were born with that prophecy in a way, do you think that made you really interested in that as a kid?
3: Well, no, I, meh, no. I didn't really know much about that story uh, until much later in my life. Okay. So, what um, you got
0: got you into being interested in?
3: So. Uh,
0: comparative religions and mythology and all that.
3: My mother um, grew up Catholic, but um, her father is free, was a Freemason, and that whole um, her whole father's side of the family is Scottish, and I come from a clan called Lamont, which is in Argyll. And uh, my family.
0: Vogel comes from. No,
3: that's uh, that's where my mother's side of the family comes from.
0: Okay, from. Vogel is my father's side of the family. Okay, I'm getting it all mixed up. So your coat of arms that's in the lodge gallery is that from?
3: Oh no 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 that's that's uh, that's the uh, logo of Republic, um, which is sort of uh, a collaborative design by myself and uh, my friend Drew, who's an amazing graphic designer. Castle.
0: So that doesn't have to do with
3: your... No, but I do. However my my do. father's side of the family, the Vogels, does have a, its own coat of arms and crest and stuff like that. But um, I grew up very familiar with the Scottish side of my family and the Freemasonic side and uh, also the Catholic side, which, by the way, if you know anything about Freemasonry, Catholics and Freemasons do not get along.
4: Oh. Um,
3: how my grandmother and my grandfather met was that uh, both of their families worked in the copper mines in Butte, Montana, and it's very poor, um, sort of like... It's weird because the copper mines are literally in the middle of Butte, Montana. So it's not like uh, a rural like a mining experience. It's it's like an urban mining experience. <laughs> it's the weirdest place in the world,
4: huh. right. Butte.
3: Um, but they uh, they met and somehow got along, and there was great opposition to them. Actually, the families didn't like each other because you know the Catholics are not supposed to like like that side of things. But
4: Interesting. you know,
3: I didn't I didn't grow up with any particular religion. My parents didn't enforce it upon me. My father, like I said, was an historian, and uh, when I traveled around the world, he would take me to mosques and temples and synagogues, and he, he, me and my brother both, and he would teach us how to make offerings or worship or follow the traditions. Beautiful. Um, you know, to wash your feet when you go into a Hindu temple, but all you have to do is take your shoes off in a mosque. (laughs) Okay. Although I'm not sure if that's universally true. That's just my, my experience over there, but, um, yeah, that started when I was very young because my dad had to travel so much, the only way to really spend time with him was the family would go with him on some of the, the some of the trips and stuff like that.
0: So that yeah. led you to do these studies later? Well, like, it made
3: me interested. Okay. Uh, there was a couple of phases of my life where I, I became increasingly involved. I, I'd say the biggest reason was, uh, f- you know... W- if you know anybody who 's Catholic and they grow up Catholic and they went to Catholic school like my mother did in in uh, Pocatello Idaho um, it 's uh it 's pretty strict in terms of your interpretation of reality and your fear of death and yeah. and the guilt and all the different kinds of associations that go along with being a member of of that organ that group and that organization there 's an intense belief that it 's true mm-hmm. and uh everyone else. It doesn't necessarily need to be saved, but they should all know that they're not going to a good place when it ends. Right. And that was a very, I I imagine in my really, like, tinier years, up until I was, you know, moved to Hong Kong, um, that was pretty much the the sphere of religion that I knew. I knew about Mormonism because there was a lot of, there's a lot of Mormons in South Central Idaho, too. Okay.
4: Yeah.
3: Uh, And also because uh, I think my father thought they were interesting because they're the one, I mean, when I say great, I don't mean like awesome. I mean like great in the sense of like uh, survived and is still expanding. It's the Mm -hmm. great American religion.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, It's the the most thriving American
3: religion. it's It's the first major religion of the world that was born in America. Yeah, It comes out of the revival period. It's from New York, from Palmyra, New York. That's where golden plates were found anyways. Yeah. So Which,
0: after Pratt, but anyway, you, so, so after Pratt you did these studies?
3: I know, I, this was all all through Pratt I was just learning and and uh meeting people who were also into the same sorts of things and we'd have okay. groups and collectives and Okay. And, and study all of this stuff. I'd go visit places. But, but when I was younger and traveling around with my dad, that was a huge influence. The biggest one, I should say, and I, I don't want to ramble too much about this, but it was just growing up in the international school system uh-huh. where like I certainly, if I had ever followed my mother's path, would have been the major minority. Uh-huh. Uh, most of the kids I went to school with were either Buddhist or Taoist or Confucianist or a mix of those three, or uh, Muslim, uh, mm-hmm. Sunni and Shiite. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh,
0: so the studies yeah, were more all informal. Place. You didn't like go to a school to study comparative religion. That was like an informal. Place, I took some think?
3: classes at Su but most okay. of it was was informal studies, learning with other people who were like authors and writers and things like that that Interesting. would give me books and guide me through the process. And then a lot of it was just um, like meetings and collectives that I was part of with other people who were interested and we would have like book reading assignments and talk and stuff. Oh, and then when I went to college, in grad school, all of my papers I wrote about that subject. So I took the opportunity when I was studying art history and painting to turn them into reasons to study what I was interested in and then bring it back around again to, to the work I was doing. So all of my work was oh. driven by those studies. Okay, um, very
0: interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah I, was, I was telling Kim earlier that I've been reading this book, uh, Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson. And it's all about, like... You were talking about Joseph Smith and America and how America has always been such a specific individual culture with individual ideas about your your life. You can do what you want to do, whether that's an extreme hippie or hyper-religious person and just like everyone's truth is okay and how that's led us to where we are sort of right now. It's a fascinating book, and it makes you think that like in me being sort of a a religious person. Wait,
3: say so that. Can you just go back for a second? I'm trying to digest what you just said. That like this country was so free in allowing the development of religious structures.
1: Yeah, like you could have all these intersections. Like um, the chapter I was just reading was talking about like how like um, satanic panic in the '80s. Oh, yeah. Was not (laughs) necessarily from the religious right. It was also from the hyper-liberal point of view of, like, recovered memories and therapy-type things that is very secular. But those two forces line up from essentially the same exact coin to make it to where you're recovering memories from... A thirty-year-old girl saying she has eaten two hundred thousand people or whatever. It's just like <laughs> it clearly could not ever happen. But every it's just such a yes culture of like, well, that's your truth, you you know. And then, and on the other side, you would have hyper-religious people being like, "Yeah, Satan's here. He's like telling me to do that," you know.
3: Well, what do they call it? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So you might not they might not agree with each other, but they both agree that everyone else is fucked up. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and just historically, like from Martin Luther saying... You know, you don't need the pope. You can hear from God, and then that coming over to America in such a profound way with like Puritans. You know? Well, that was
3: explosive because I mean Luther was so much more than just uh, telling people you could have a personal relationship with God. I mean, he was teaching people how to read. People take this for granted. That's Even right. Now, yes. Go exactly. to Southeast Asia in the '80s, and I'll tell you what: like, yeah. like 60 to 70 percent of the people there couldn't read, so they were they're still stuck in the trappings, like many people in. in um, the Middle East are, too, because they don't have access to education. Mm. Think about the women yeah. that, that never got to go to school so they could never learn how to read. Right. They could never read the Koran for themselves. Yeah. They could never read the Bible for themselves and come up with their own interpretation. You're sort of left in the trappings of a world where like, you're dependent on someone else telling you what the nature of reality is instead of having access to the tools you need to explore it for yourself.
1: But right. there's collateral with that, too, because you've got to think by the time... Puritans who were educated come to this country being able to read, learning that you could hear directly from God, didn't need a pope or anything. It's in expanding this fairly empty territory, just saying, like, we can do whatever we want to here. And yeah, this no, was sure. all, this country, we always had that feeling to it, to where you know, you kind of end up where we are now, with like a you know, I don't know, you mix throw a little P.T. Barnum in there, throw a little, in you get Donald
2: Trump, you know, where it's just like <laughs> oh,
3: my, Trump middle Trump. fingers a, a all A generation around.
2: of uh, hyper-reality. That's our version of it right now. Yeah. Hyper-reality, we absolutely. do have the pure contact of the truth anymore. I think uh, I sent you that article about it. Right. And it's the same concept. We are illiterate of the truth.
3: Yeah, the truth, isn't Rowe. the truth what you make of it? Well, yeah, because yeah. there's the so is many. truth what you want it to be. There's so many <laughs> yeah.
0: truths, quote unquote, truths out there. So right, which one is your the truth
3: true is wrong?
2: Truth? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like what?
3: My pain is stronger than your pain. Or so on. And so well, far. it's 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 yeah yeah, and that I mean that's just a recurring pattern throughout history, over and over again. Well,
0: that's the and great philosophical to... question: what is true? Well, uh, yeah.
3: Well, there's what happened, and then there's what's true. But that's the only the only difference <laughs> that I know.
0: That, that that is true. There you go. Um, <laughs> so this all kind of feeds into a question that I had because we've talked about this before is like this notion of secular awe. Oh yeah. And the and the artist as a shaman. Sure. So I'm. Just, they're their own
3: shaman though. They're not anybody else's. Okay. Yeah.
1: Wait. Speak to speak to that. They're, they're their own shaman.
3: Uh. So. Uh, a shaman serves a purpose in a society, right? He's the person who's going to intermediate between the the invisible world of the great mysteries of life and the everyday goings on of the peoples. And which uh, America never needed. <laughs> well, America had before uh, Europeans got here. Yeah, a great exactly. Cultural yes. yeah, tradition. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't,
1: I didn't mean to. I didn't of, of, sh- of,
3: of shaman's who would, um, you know. Uh, Go on inward journeys Mm
4: -hmm.
3: um, and learn how to swim comfortably in the waters of the unconscious mind that make most people uncomfortable. In fact, Joseph Campbell used to teach this class at Sarah Lawrence about schizophrenia and shamanism. Mm -hmm. And the only difference between the two being is that the schizophrenic is like flailing and drowning in the waters of the unconscious, where the shaman has purposefully been trained from a child to go into those same states of mind and comfortably navigate his way in and out. So... um,
1: but he would also say the role of a shaman often is to conquer some idea of hell to keep the tribe motivated to keep working all year. Like these big well, ceremonies where absolutely. are like out.
3: My interpretation of that exact same thing that you're talking about is that the shaman's job is to create a standard exercise of rituals mm-hmm. for himself to participate in and and by the act of doing showing the community that through a series of rituals you can attain higher consciousness or higher um, higher resolution of your desires or whatever that it means like to get better if you're sick or to have stuff if you don't have stuff
4: Um,
3: and then and then come up with some sort of creative and fun engaging plan for the children to execute their own series of rituals to unite them, one, by all of us in this one small community have the same rituals, but and then to individually teach each person how to use those rituals to go exploring inside themselves, holding your hand, and taking you on the, the adventure, right? Mm.
0: Weirdly, mm. I'm making a connection to this... Uh, biopic I just saw on The Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia.
3: Oh, God. <laughs> they only have one good song. <laughs> I can't even remember the name of it.
0: Yeah, sorry about that. But the point is,
3: the point I'm kidding, is, he was. into the devil. He was okay. a
0: sort of shaman of his time as well, I mean, in, in that respect. You know, they had the ritual of the concert, you know, oh, sure. and everybody took that to their. It was.
3: Well, any kind of cult of personality like that that has a message that's. Beyond, like a not a non-specific message. Like I imagine Jerry Garcia's message would have been like, just chill out and like lose yourself in the jam or yeah. something, you know? <laughs> um,
0: so profound.
3: Yeah, but I mean, people people like that can be very inspirational. So that somebody is like, I don't want to just lose myself in the jam anymore. I want to make my own jam, and then they right. go out and they start their own like but you know Grateful Dead cover band. About, Which is that, it is was the... also or, or about, fish.
0: but it was also about the journey. <laughs> It was also about the journey. Yes. The, the, the deadheads that follow them, they go through trials and, and tribulations on the way to go see the Grateful Dead. I mean, they have flat oh, tires. Oh, yeah, that's
3: true. They have those followings where people yeah. like follow them around the country and yeah, stuff like and that. Yeah, and horrible like things live.
0: happen to them, and they still go, and they like spend the effort of getting there. What does that
3: say about s- human the heroes nature right there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Says they like to jam <laughs> they like to, to jam
1: slow jams <laughs> but i didn't so you were saying being your own shaman would be what exactly in that metaphor being a, a fish cover band like taking something that existed and spinning off of it is well, that that's what you're saying
3: uh, i mean no i mean for artists i i would i would say no for most people i think that that's how v- how they Create their own, uh, the own living myths of their own lives is by seeing other people do it, and then at first uh, mimicking, or trying to uh, understand how that process works, and then maybe slowly building towards the idea of creating their own version of that to get to that state. But yeah. artists already have it in. You know, if you're, I know very few few painters that would prefer to paint with like a room full of people around than right. to be alone with the work. Um, creating your, their own like formula for how to get in these states of mind. Um, yeah, some of them th- don't do it at all, and that is their ritual: is that they just go right in and just start working. Right. You know, and then like then they it just it'll just come. You know, like the like uh you you're from the south, right? So the Pentecost and that whole idea of speaking in tongues are like the
1: dancing. Just right. let it drop. It doesn't matter. Okay. Sorry.
3: Um, yeah, sorry, I got distracted. What was I talking about? Pentecost, the South. <laughs> yeah, those yeah.
1: things are <laughs> f- funny Well,
3: I'll tell you what, they're about as close to the shit that I grew up with that they're closer to that than the more puritanical, like, uh, you know, Methodist or... But or, I think
1: there is a faith in what you're talking about that's interesting to me and a faith in almost humanity in the arts. Like, the idea that... Well, it's funny, because Kim and I were talking about morphic resonance earlier, the idea that on almost a genetic level, you can carry information through. And so, like, if you... Example. An, an example would be like Jimi Hendrix, is, did something mind-blowing, and or Babe Ruth, whatever. And because he existed and did something mind-blowing, a 12-year-old kid can do it next Tuesday, you know what I'm saying? To and, and I guess the faith comes in that humanity, through art and innovation, continues to better itself each generation because you've passed down... Or skateboarding, we talked about earlier, gymnastics. Like, things I saw and could do 15 years ago it doesn't even compare to what a 12-year-old kid can do now on a skateboard, you know? Sure. And, and the idea, I think, there is some sort of faith if if I'm, I'm very secular, but an idea that an artist should be and is better today than they were fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, because those artists existed then. You know what I'm saying? No,
0: we're standing on the shoulders of yeah. giants.
1: You're standing on the, and, and your burden is heavier, but your opportunity is better, and you should be better at a younger age now than. Than you know, even the greats like Rembrandt and stuff, there's a lot of people who could paint way better than that who will never get noticed today. You know what I'm saying? Well,
3: even back then, though, there were a lot of people that could paint better than Rembrandt, but that's they were never too. noticed in their day because they weren't born into the right circumstance. Yeah, that's right.
1: absolutely, I agree 100 Or their parents wanted them
3: to do something else with their lives. Or yeah. out of necessity, they had to go work the farm to keep their brothers and sisters alive.
1: Oh, man, there's that great artsy podcast. We should note that, Kim, that... Artsy podcast about why Night's Watch became such a famous painting and why Rembrandt mm. became so famous, and like the ingredients that went into well, he that, used the a lot models of too. Yeah, that's
3: the, was the why. models. But yeah, yeah, it just kind of <laughs> uh, like Andy Warhol. He became famous because he painted famous people. Right. That's
0: right, right. There's little Which tricks. you can't do now. It's like and famous so products
1: or painting, or or painting now, the cow, so. you yeah, know, like and famous just products. inserting yourself into a. a a stream that's already headed somewhere that that in a way like kandinsky like talks about that triangle like the tip of it moving through space where there's very little recognition on the tip of a triangle moving Mm. through time that would be your velvet underground certainly on the tip of something and the back end is nirvana making so much money off a formula that was already there and the wave was just about to to go you know Stealing the pixie's thunder? Yeah, this pixie's thunder, sure.
0: Well, you back know? to that 100th monkey thing that I was talking about. Yeah, do you know, you know the story about the 100th monkey? You probably
3: oh, heard that. That sounds so familiar.
0: It all has to do with that morphic... I
3: feel it like I saw that on the method. internet.
1: Resonance, yeah, morphic resonance. Yeah,
0: so like, there's two... There's There's an island, and there's the monkeys on the inland, and there's monkeys on the island. And they can't communicate with each other, and the island is far enough away, so they can't see each other. And I guess it's a potato. I'm not sure. I think it's a potato. So the monkeys on the island are, are, not on the island, on the mainland are eating these potatoes, and then one like drops it in the water cuz they're on the beach and he discovers that he or she discovers that he they can't uh, don't have the sand and the grittiness of the sand with the potato so the next time they do it again and then the next next thing you know oh another monkey sees him do that and then the Are you next about monkey evolution?
3: like socio. and uh, well, I'm I'm not joking like evolutionary social behavior sure but here's yeah. the
0: interesting thing so all of those that big tribe is doing that now on the inland, and then all of a sudden on the island, the monkeys over there start doing the same thing, so it's like it leaps
3: uh, i've heard this this in a different context in in terms of uh, the great pyramids that are all over the world, uh, sometimes through cultural diffusion. Uh, that shape and design of the pyramid, the idea of the pyramid not being like a a square going up to one point, but one point radiating down from from the heavens in all the great cultures of the world. Um, Where in some places, yeah, it's it's eerily creepy how um, without ever having met or known each other in the same way that your monkey's on the island and the mainland, uh, around the same periods of time, human beings are pre-programmed to almost like make landmark evolutions in in states of thinking and stuff like that so you get pyramids in in Egypt and western China and uh they you know the South American ones like, don't happen until much does that much happen? later, but why
4: does that but then, because then.
3: we're predisposed towards things. I mean, there's there's when you rub your eyes, you get like you get geometric patterns. Um, I used to I, do that
0: on purpose when I was a kid. I still At do it, it all the time. What are you talking glasses. about? Why did you
3: stop? You should <laughs> yeah, do it still. I ended up getting Pretty an operation drugs. on my say. eye for that
0: reason, so no more pushing of oh, okay. the
3: <laughs> eyelids. Don't. Maybe you're pushing really much harder than I did <laughs>
1: But um, that is an interesting segue in the your most recent show, which, by the way, I think you're a brilliant curator.
3: Uh, and and uh, it, I just I just work with really talented artists. I have a very this, high standard for the people I like to show.
1: But during this conversation, it's 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 easy to see how someone so informed and interesting can curate beautiful shows.
3: No, oh, thanks, man.
1: But um, yeah. latent content because Jung, I remember reading would would have like these ideas of symbols and dreams popping up across cross cultures that couldn't have had Psycho- the,
3: the psychological archetypes
1: yeah totally yeah. where it's like you're okay. not you don't know that this means that there's no way you could have been told what the snake means what the culture. semiotics
0: of it yeah, uh, yeah but
1: it popped up in your dream and clearly means that thing for you and it's like what the fuck is that
3: stuff, I will give you, you a you great know? example of, of so, something that happened to me when I was very young, about seven, eight years old. It was the great disillusion of religion for me. And it has to do with these observing and noting these patterns that exist in cultures that never would have... The, the idea for what they're doing would never have been diffused into one or the other one. These arose separately, uniquely. Mm-hmm. Um, in Hong Kong and Taiwan, there's this... There's this ritual that happens. It's much more uh, interesting in Taipei, especially back in the day. I haven't actually seen it in probably like 20 years, but when I was growing up there, it would happen often, and my friends and I would watch and follow. And what it was was this ritual where there would be all these trucks, as there always is in every festival, like drums and firecrackers. Okay. To scare away the bad spirits, oh, all that okay. stuff. Also, to maybe announce your presence, but mostly to scare Isn't away the bad sort spirits. sort of like a
0: potlatch thing, too? How so? Well, just like bringing all that immensity The, the in, en- energy and everything, it, yeah. 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 To
3: make it a ritual, you have to have yeah. some, some flair, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's the P.T. Barnum part of religion. <laughs> but, uh, which I'm not opposed to. It's actually the only entertaining part. It's the only way it works.
1: <laughs> I think it's the only way it works to get people coming back. It has to have It a, has, to, add, or, or shock value, or,
3: which is yeah. where this story's going. Or all scare right. the shit out of people. Hello?
0: That is not me. Go ahead, sorry about that. I only did you so what happened in this okay, so, story?
3: I'm sorry. So in, in, I'm not going to get too involved in the little details of it and I'll try and tell it as fast as I can, but there's all these trucks, maybe 50 trucks they go. Um, behind them are a series of priests uh, in uh priestly getup um, of robes and hoods and they have two satchels on each side. Maybe there's like Five, seven priests? don't remember the exact number of the priests themselves, actually. But they have like what looks like confetti, and they're just tossing it out of the bags and throwing it on the ground. Okay. Uh, behind them are about seven kids from maybe from 15 to 20 years old, and they've all been uh, hand-selected by the congregation of their temple. Um, this is, uh, yeah, and, well, I'm not going to get into that stuff, but they've been hand-selected by the congregation of their temple to perform this ritual that's going to happen and probably have trained in meditation and, uh, trance states, mm-hmm. um, probably like, uh, deeper lessons into the, into the mysteries of what they're doing, um, than the, con- the rest of the congregation would know. Okay. Um, but anyway, what they're doing is they're walking around with like swords and, and, uh, And chains with spiked balls on the end of them and knives and just absolutely eviscerating themselves, slicing themselves open, stabbing themselves, hitting themselves in the back, bleeding all over the place. Wow. Uh, so So they're marching over all these confetti papers that the priests have thrown on the floor and the blood is getting all over them. Wow. And they're marching through. And behind them is a bunch of other priests who are picking up all the papers and shoving them into... Satchels that they uh. have in their pockets, and then behind them is another fifty trucks, and bang, 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 and boom, firecrackers and all that shit to uh-huh. get rid of the bad spirits. And It makes its way through the city, I and mean, this is a, this is a even. I imagine it still happens today. I, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't do this, although I haven't been back to Taipei to see this in a long time. But uh, you know, right past the international school, twice a year they would do this festival.
1: Wow, wow!
3: Um, I've seen people cut their tongues off, their ear lobes off, oh, just bleeding my. excessively. And is then it they make like their, a penance? Like hang on. A no, 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 no. Okay. Uh, there's a like, reason I'm telling you this story and, like and, and getting you grossed out. <laughs> it is self-flagellation, so, so okay. but it's not self-flagellation. It's just, I would call it in this case, flagellation. The explanation is forthcoming. They get to the temple. Um, the priests all make their way up. And like a temple there is not like here. Uh, it's uh, more of an open form temple, I'd say. It's uh-huh. actually quite small usually in, the, in downtown Taipei. Um, if there is a congregation coming for a big event, it's usually a lot of card tables and stools and stuff like that under a tent that's set up out in front of the temple because the temple itself is just, it's not accommodating to that kind of like capacity. Anyway, so this... Uh, so they
0: arrive at the temple. So they all arrive
3: to the temple. And you know, my friend Leif and I used to sit on the wall of, of Taipei American School and watch this go right down Belu, um, Beilu, which is in Tinmu, any uh, Taiwan fans out there.
0: Uh, here's a shout out to Taiwan fans
3: <laughs> ICRT baby <laughs> you'll know what that means <laughs> anyway so they get to the temple and like I said the temple isn't like a Jewish temple or a Christian church it's it's often you know it's just open throughout the day and people come and go as they want they make their offerings you pray with your incense and stuff like that sorry now it's my phone freaking out that wasn't me um Anyway, yeah. so they get there. There's a bunch of people usually sitting at tables and stuff like that, and they've made offerings and all different kinds of stuff. Um, the guys who are cutting themselves, if you follow along this congregation, are usually drinking Taiwan beer behind uh, the temple and, like, smoking cigarettes because their part is done, okay. and they're just, like, fist-bumping each other and, like, laughing and joking as Yay, if we happened. scarred
0: ourselves for life.
3: Uh, yes. In a way, <laughs> Yes. Um, that whole martyr thing. I mm. uh, can never get the hang of that. But anyway, so so what would happen is the priest would go up and there's a big cauldron there. All of the bloody papers would be thrown into the cauldron and burn and turn to an ash. Boiling water would be added to the ash to make like a tea from the ash. And then one by one, the congregation comes up and drinks the tea. Okay. And now the idea of this is that like when these guys are slicing themselves and cutting themselves open, they're in a trance state. They're uh, possessed. The god himself is in their body and is infused physically with them, um, so uh, when they bleed they 're not bleeding their blood they 're bleeding their blood, but it 's the god 's blood that they 're bleeding okay same kind of metaphor in the Christian tradition of transubstantiation, which is yeah. this is my body, this is right. my blood, yeah. from the Catholic perspective yeah um, so like, like I said, my mother being Catholic, I was very familiar with uh, what transubstantiation familiar was with the gore. and when I saw that. For the first time, you know, I was like, oh, my God, these guys are doing there is an overlap. There is this is an archetypal experience. And I'd already been interested in in Joseph Smith well into high school. There's another thing my friend Leif brought from New York City, by the way. Okay. Joseph Smith uh, books, um, the the Masks of God was a great one. Oh, wait, Joseph Campbell, Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Yeah, you Who did say, I just say? Smith, the, oh, I'm the sorry. guy. Joseph Campbell. Yeah, yeah, mm. Joseph Campbell. Joseph Smith Campbell. <laughs> the, the, the biggest lore for me with those books was that uh, he had Luke Skywalker on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, Joseph Campbell died on Skywalker Ranch. I don't know if you know that, but uh. lived with George Lucas for a long time. And George Lucas built the myth of Luke Skywalker as the modern um, hero archetype around oh, yeah. the teachings of, of Joseph Campbell.
1: Because oh, okay. they recorded power oh, myth on Skywalker yeah.
3: Ranch. Yeah. 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 yeah, they did. So uh, that that got me really interested in that stuff, and then I found out that there's other examples from all over the world of of transubstantiation and the idea of like my body, my blood, and um, anyway, all of that became very disillusioning to me. And the whole idea of studying that stuff while I was a gymnast doing like hours of meditative visualization exercises in yoga, it just felt like none of this was right. Mm. And the only true thing about all of it uh, is the core purpose of why they're doing it. And uh, there's some sort of ritual exercise that's performed in order to get to that state of understanding why we're all doing this. And then later making artwork, realizing that, oh my God, I can explore all the same things as both the guys who are cutting themselves, the priests, and the congregation uh, in my studio alone by myself kind of like just going off the deep end into those dark waters yeah. of the unconscious mind and scaring myself sometimes and maybe not coming back 100%, uh-huh. but ah. certainly trying to take a, a shamanistic approach to learning how to swim in those waters on my own without uh, without any... pre-existing guide to it other than that I know that other people have gone in there alone before and come out with a greater understanding than you could ever get by following someone else's understanding
0: Sort of like that... that. Um, and
3: that's Sid Harthas t- t- teaching, too, by the way. Sid right. is like, you know, I, I may have become enlightened, but, like, if you want to be enlightened, you're not going to find it by doing how I did it. You're going to have yeah, to figure him. out how to do it yeah. yourself.
0: Right, and also sort of like that idea that it, in order for the boy to become the man, they have to go out into the wilderness... And go through oh, yes. that. Sort this is of- called
3: vagina envy, by the way. Oh. <laughs> yes, women women have uh, the natural cycles of their bodies to initiate them from uh, girlhood to womanhood, and yeah, men have traditionally done all sorts of creepy, weird shit to reenact <laughs> that kind of like lack of they biological just don't transition. Have it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but don't you think it's harder to find that in the in the modern world? You know, I think about what Kim was saying. About becoming a man and then vagina and being... In, in like, John Steinbeck had that quote in whatever... I forgot the book, Red Pony or something, where you become a man when a man is needed, essentially. Like, you, you don't just come on...
3: Necessity is the mother of invention kind exactly. of idea. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And it doesn't seem like...
3: or you, Or you you're need, forced. Yeah. By, or, like, a father figure or an older person to force you into the adulthood as seen by some smaller... Well, well um, like a bar
1: mitzvah or some sort of
3: yeah, adult or uh, yeah, christening or you know in, even African tribal religions, you know they take the boys out and scare the bejesus out of them for like a week and like yeah, scarf those are so scarify intense. them and do crazy shit to them to yes. tr- to force them into the transition of what manhood means to the village or the society. So, but
1: we're clearly in this phase where it's a extraordinarily prolonged adolescence, right? You know, like adult. Fans of Disney, going you know, like all, whatever it is, cargo shorts, all that shit. <laughs> it's just sort of like what, what, how do you, how do you create art in this world where no, no one's really in touch with that shit? I mean, I think the artwork that I make certainly alienates me from people who just want to see a picture of a horse over and over again. It's just, it's like we've had this huge dumbing down in the last. Thirty years, you know what I'm saying. To well,
3: do you think that that's a result of people making artwork uh, for uh, an audience as opposed to making it for them, themselves? Yeah, in a progressively it's very more hard to go on that inward audience. journey when the ultimate goal of the inward journey is to create a product that's popularly like, right. you, accessible. It's impossible. You yeah.
0: know, people always say to me like, "What would what would your art look like if nobody was looking?"
1: Yeah. It would unfortunately. It would look the same. Like, Mine would look the same, but it's it's <laughs> it's never that. the road to being uh, popular. You know, it's never gonna. You're never gonna get. I mean, who wants to look at your neuroses on their wall? They want to look at a picture of a cow or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone it's, who
3: collects Philip Gustin <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's who wants to see a picture of their neurosis on a wall. Yeah, so,
1: that's, so I think it's. It does like, exist. I love
3: Philip Gustin by the way. He's one of my favorite painters.
1: Yeah, he's, he's amazing, great. actually. Yeah, he is pretty
3: amazing. This, despite the cartoonishness of it all, I, I think that he was onto something, too, because he went his own way.
1: Yeah, he really did. But and they're
3: dark as shit,
1: man. Like they're super pink dark. Like, weird
3: faces, smoking. with. I mean, it's like... Plus, he gave up a pretty, uh, you know, illustrious career as an abstract artist, which yeah. was easier to digest for, I think, most people, because there's no... There's less of the confrontation of, like, does this, uh, you know, visually represented image mean something or not to a person, you know, people can lose themselves in the visceral response to the kind of abstractions he was doing, and to just give all that up, to try something new against, uh, you know, advice from pretty much everybody in, in the world, that's so to interesting follow his need to explore that, you know?
0: Right, and but, that's so interesting because Clint did exactly the opposite, yeah. so nowadays... Yeah given the dialogue of art and abstraction being the king now, that you have to do exactly the opposite in order to...
3: Exactly. So So my lesson to you guys is you should all quit painting and become iPhone photographers. <laughs> <laughs> but I think... Noted. To
1: pull this back around a little. Hey,
3: it, it, works. It's, it, it works for uh, Richard Prince. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. Uh, or just Instagram. Or just Instagram and chat. Screenshots, yeah. But I think uh your your curatorial uh proclivities that are so impressive to me are you'll have people like sort of hot button artist on your you know like Wellington and stuff that that
3: he's provocative
1: that's provocative yes. that's really great art that is. Pushing boundaries in and, and even at the least it's just your eye is really interesting and and into, I mean it's all subjective, but I love who you pick and I think you you curate really great interesting art where you could just sort of dumb it down a little and be a little more accessible, but it doesn't seem like that's where your heart
0: is. Yeah, so no, it's I guess not. the question is like, how do you? What do you see the role of? A gallery in today's digital age, like because I think it has changed the the purpose of a gallery. What is your idea when you're? What's your curatorial ethos? Being?
3: Well, look, I'm by no means like a normal person that would ever own or run a gallery. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's all I've ever done is work for galleries. Okay. Um, so I have a lot of experience um, on on both extremes of that world. When I graduated from um, grad school, my first job was with uh, a a great man named Arne Anton who um, had his own beautiful vision for what he wanted to do with his life and what he wanted to show. And uh, he was an art dealer. He dealt in um, outsider art, visionary art, art brute, that kind of world uh, at a time when uh, there was less... There was more of a distinction between an artist who went to school and an artist who did not go to school. So right. mm-hmm. he and and I think Roger Rico and Gavin Morris and those guys, uh, Rico Moresca, Sorry, I don't want to just single out Roger, although awesome dude. <laughs> um, uh, they all started the original Outsider Art Fair, which uh, they eventually ended up, I think, selling to um, to Andrew Edlin. Okay. But um, they were they were the first generation of trying to blend these shows of like artists who went to school and a little higher concept or versus like, you know, some just genius dude who was like, worked in the post office in Pittsburgh and would go home at night and secretly make these like incredible things. Yeah. Um, And I always, I always felt pulled towards artists like that. Um, I mean, I come out of academia, but but I always felt a pull towards some, there's a purity about that to me somehow. Right. That Like there's the, the compulsion to do something. Whether punk it's, rock aesthetic, man. It's totally punk rock, and it's it's just, you're driven. They're they, they, It's their own ritual. They've made one for themselves. Without even knowing anything about the stuff that we've been talking about all day, they've accidentally been creating their own, like, mythological narrative for their own life. Yeah.
0: So that's the <coughs> of...
3: and their ways of coping with things in a very like sec- secular all way. Mm-hmm. The reason I, I um I was bringing up that story about Taipei and stuff like right. that. The, there's something very theatrical about that to me too, and very artistic on both sides of, of transubstantiation and like and a little I was PT Barnum totally. But if you if you strip away all the religion and all you're left with is the PT Barnum and and the great inward journey um, and the mystery. Um, there's ways to do that uh, without falling into the trappings of religion in a secular way Yeah. and you know these guys, these self-taught artists for me in many ways um, there's one guy named Anthony Dominguez who had what some people would call a midlife crisis and other, what he called a spiritual revelation later in his life gave up all of his material possessions and went to go live on the streets of New York City on purpose
0: hmm.
3: we would sell his artwork and keep it in cash in an envelope and he would come in like once a year and be like, I'm going to go to Italy for a week. Uh, I need like $400. I'm like, oh how are you going to live in Italy for a week and $400? He's like, no, no, no. I just need the $400 for the plane ticket. And so he would fly to Italy and he'd get off the plane and live on the streets wow. of Italy, wherever wow. he was going. Yeah. And then uh, come back and go right, get off the plane at the airport and not go to a home, go back to just living in his weird world. And all of his yeah. art was made out of things that he found on the street. And like... That was like the most pure artist I ever met in my life. Okay. Sadly, he ended up uh, dying
4: oh.
3: uh, under bizarre circumstances in a tri- trip he did across the country. But I really liked that that purity and stuff like that. The other half was like after that job, I went to go work in Chelsea forever, and so the you know the high end corporate, more corporate minded. Mm-hmm. Um, experience was something I did for even longer than I worked for ARN.
0: Is that where Republic Worldwide came out of, or...?
3: Uh, in a way, uh, I, the last job I had was with uh, in Chelsea was with Yancey Richardson. It's a photography gallery, although sometimes installation stuff. Um, she was amazing, an incredible human being, um, let alone being one of the few women to survive... Uh, owning a gallery and getting to the, the career level she was at very early on in the transition from, from Soho to, to Chelsea. Huge inspiration and I learned and was given more from her than probably anybody else.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, she won't listen to this probably but like I love you Yancy. <laughs> Yay. Um, wait where's the, where's the crowd uh, wait, of Hang on. Where's my oh it's upside down. Uh oh. There we go. Yay. Yay. <laughs> They do make you happy. <laughs> anyway, um, I, so, my last year working for her, uh, my girlfriend at the time and a, a mutual friend of ours opened a gallery over by the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Okay. And um, I didn't know how to reconcile that with her because I didn't want to leave my job because it was pretty, you know, I had benefits and all that yeah, awesome all right stuff you have when benefits. you work for other people. Yeah. And I couldn't quite let that get over that, that fear hump. Um, at, at the time anyways, but, um, yeah, M- MCV was the first, ga- first gallery I had over there by the Navy Yard. Uh, that was up for about maybe a year and a half to almost two years. I think we ran a program there and then, uh, that closed and, uh, I started Republic, which was originally Republic Brooklyn okay. because we were in Brooklyn and it was nine members because nine is a magic number. Oh. Um, yeah. Nine always repeats on itself. Uh, Nine times one.
1: Nine.
3: All right. Nine times two. Eighteen. Eight plus one equals.
0: Nine.
1: Nine
3: times three. Wait. I'm... Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. Two plus yeah, seven yeah, equals yeah, nine. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's right. That's right. That's, like that's, that's like forever. the one mathematical thing that, that I've itself. memorized. The druids. I'm the, terrible
0: at math. That's the one thing I can
3: <laughs> remember. <hear> <laughs> the old Celts and the druids loved the number nine. and They thought it was magical. So the republic nine, nine was something nine, that happened from nine. the very beginning. Uh, it was nine people. Most of them were. Well, I was the ninth person, but there were eight other people. That had different jobs. Um, Republic was three had three parts back then. One was um, the how we made our money, which was uh, managing collections and uh, dealing with art world logistics and stuff, installations, um, occasional acquisitions for different clients of mine that I built up over time. The other one was um, the exhibitions. So we would do we would get. Places where we could do our exhibitions for maybe three to four months at a time. So we could probably pump out like maybe two, three good exhibitions. In
0: temporary spaces? Or? And, oh,
3: no, repurposed spaces.
0: Okay.
3: Um, okay. Usually big empty warehouses that we would go in uh, with the team and just build out. Wow. In exchange for the space, we would build out the spaces for them with everything from like digital video projection screens and all sorts of crazy stuff. Did you know, we have
0: like a stock of stuff that we, you would just like transport and bring in, like the lights and whatever you needed? Like... Uh,
3: eventually that developed. That, oh, that okay. built towards that. Not at first. Many of the places we had had their own lighting systems, or that I would completely circumnavigate that by doing digital video projection shows or film festivals or whatever I needed to do to keep the budget down. Mm-hmm. Um, but for every two projects we did, there was also the charity program. Um, so there was a charity dire- our com- community relations director, and we would do, uh, for every two vanity projects that we do for ourselves in our own interest, there would be one that would be for, we'd donate like six months' time to someone. Like The last one we did was with the Cook Center for Learning and Development in Soho. Okay. It's a school for kids with autism and Down syndrome. And, uh, You know, there just happens to be a lot of outsider and self-taught artists that I'd heard of and known about from working with Arn way back in the day, an American primitive gallery, that uh, I thought I could get someone like Roger Rico to come in and give a lecture series, bring in some of the artists uh, that had autism or uh, some sort of, like, um, you know, alternative thinking model. I like that very much, Um, Because no doubt they're just as smart as anyone. They just have a more difficult time communicating what's happening in their mind and and uh, the mind body connection. Mm-hmm. But but anyway, um, so th- there were those three divisions. There were nine people. Some that lasted for probably like three years. Okay. As Republic, as things morphed and transformed, that's probably I think 2009 is when we officially coalesced as a team and started moving things out. Uh, and then by 2012, most of those guys had like gone on and used the, oppor- a lot of them used the opportunity. I have to say they were great. I didn't have a lot, of, a lot of money to pay them, but I had all sorts of opportunities for them to gain experience and like pad their resume and do all sorts of cool things. They've got titles like, you know, director of exhibitions and shit like yeah, that. Right. And I gave them hundred percent of myself and uh, I quit my job in 2009 and incorporated that business and. I tried to run it the best I could with the limited resources I had and do as much good in the community, too.
0: Um, Yeah, that's something I really like about...
3: That came out of the first gallery, because the first gallery, it was over by the Navy Yard, and it was almost impossible to get anybody to come there. It was off the G-Train at Clinton-Washington stop, and then it's like a good 15-minute hike still to get to the Navy Yard from there. Yeah. So we thought, what if we did every single show that we did was in conjunction with a different charity? And then we're bringing people from the community or people bringing artists who are interested in that particular cause and then a regular crowd of people. And then also usually the Pratt Institute crowd would come hang out and stuff like that because, you know, it's an opening and we had free booze and college kids <laughs> love that shit. <laughs> and food. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, sometimes we did have food. <laughs> but it was, actually, it was much easier back then to get sponsorships for things because if it's for... If all the pro- proceeds... You know, we were operating at a... Um, We all had separate other jobs while we were running that first gallery. Like, I was still working for Yancey, so
4: um,
3: we would break even, and anything over breaking even would just go to whatever charity we were sponsoring. Um, But because of that, we could get, like, booth sponsors and food sponsors, and everybody wanted to be associated with good reason or or whatever.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
3: So when the gallery folded, I really wanted to carry on that that tradition of community outreach and, and stuff like that, so... That worked for a while, the Republic 9. It boiled down to about the Republic 5 first and then went down to three of us,
4: okay. which was
3: uh, me and um, uh, a consultant, my a friend of mine who was a consultant on the project with like business advice and legal advice and stuff like that, and then uh, the IT guy who just ran the website and posted and did pretty much everything. And we would go out and do some small projects. Uh, and ended up becoming... First, I think what was it was like the marketing director or something like that for the Fountain Art Fair, and then eventually development director for that fair, and okay. I kind of fell into that as the pe- people peeled off and ended up getting like super high paying jobs for like advertising companies and are moving to Los Angeles to start their own galleries or whatever Not bad. Yeah. Um, i'm looking at you, Sam Katz <laughs> she's amazing, actually Sam Katz has helped run a Bushwick Open Studios for years now oh great. Oh, wow. and is a Great, fascinating, brilliant, um, I want to say young person, but uh, that sounds like I'm diminishing all the things that she's done. (coughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, so Republic has been many things over the years. I always wanted it to be sort of like this plastic umbrella organization that could serve whatever purpose it needed to serve. Okay. I met Keith in 2012. And... um, and when that happened, Republic's purpose had, had become to create the capital to do the projects that we were going to do, mm-hmm. um, which became less important over time. But at the very beginning of at least the Lodge Gallery, that was that was part of how we were able to produce and, and keep things moving and, and hold things together until okay. we were g- able to get our feet down and start like running the gallery as a proper gallery.
0: So Lodge was like a, a stable base for... The Republic?
3: Uh, I think originally it was, it was touted as the exhibition space of Republic Worldwide, but um, but in time it became its own thing. I mean, I think when Keith and I opened the Lodge Gallery, we didn't know... Keith
0: Schweitzer?
3: Keith Schweitzer, yeah. When did you if open it? If I didn't it? say this. Uh, 2012. 2012. So this is our fifth year. Okay. Um, I don't think that either of us knew where exactly it was going or how long it was going to last for. We kind of were invited in to curate the first uh, exhibition in in there with uh, Figure Nineteen, and um, they liked the it. The bar and so in the back. Figure the bar 19, in the back. Yeah. yeah. So it was originally it was just supposed to be this one project, okay. just to see how it would go. Uh huh. And we didn't know if like there was very little communication with them at first. It's sort of like here's this awesome idea that we have um, for the show. And then uh, they were like, "We love it, we love it." And like, we're like, "Okay, well, I wonder if this is—is is this a test to see if we can stay here, or right. are, are they going to oh. let us do another one, or like?" Uh. So we kind—it of, was just kind of like figuring out if they liked it and how things went and move forward, and uh, that kind of just evolved into uh, regular programming. And like, I don't know if you've ever been in a partnership with anyone, like the kinds of things that overlap in terms of your interests. After about two years, it becomes really obvious the kinds of recurring themes that we liked. Sure. And there was a lot of um, natural science that came out of those first two years, and architecture, um, explorations into humor. Yeah, Um,
0: Seems like a lot of things were like kind of happenings, like with Frank Porcus.
3: Well, that didn't happen. That just happened... uh, what, that was like pretty a year, recent. A year and a half yeah, ago, I think. Right. Frank yeah. was your roommate, right? <laughs> Frank Portier. <who? laughs> oh, are you? Do you mean the drummer from Yepside? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Frank. <laughs> Calling you out. Um, yeah, no. Frank is brilliant. I mean, he was. I was very lucky to have uh, been fortunate enough. When I was in undergrad at at Pratt, uh, Frank and I were roommates. We used to drink this horrible, horrible liquor called Sheridan's, which is kind of like... Uh,
1: Never heard of it.
3: It's kind of like uh, Bailey's Irish cream, except it's split, so there's the the coffee side and then the cream side and, in the bottle, and then you pour them together in your shot glass. Oh, my God. Horrible. Ugh. But we would stay up at night and do portraits of each other and just talk about art and philosophy and art history and stuff like that, and, um, you know, despite... Our, our mutual interest in like punk music and like progressive, transgressive music um, he was a huge inspiration in terms of just the dedication to painting I mean I don't think I've ever met anybody who could just lose themselves completely in a love for something like that yeah. and he went on to I mean he's still an insanely talented artist but um, his, he, he wanted to become a great researcher and anatomist and he, he took me up to help dissect cadavers at Columbia Presbyterian. He showed, he showed me around the human body how in was, a very how dark and bleak way. Cool. Oh, awesome. It was great. Uh, I got to hold a human heart in my hand. Oh, wow. Um,
0: so the gallery was kind of an evolution. Sorry, evo- I got off track. The ga- <laughs> Sorry. That's why I'm here. Uh, <laughs> so the gallery was kind of an evolution then uh, into more, like you said, you were doing architecture and...
3: Well, uh, no, I mean just the the kind of recurring themes that would pop up in the shows that that uh, we would work on together. There was some ba- just basic concepts and themes that would recur. Like once a year, we would come revisit things. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of knew. I I've, I mean I've I've been curating for a long time shows in that of that scale, so I kind of knew. I kind of had my, already the although it, I'm like talking over myself here, but uh, I have a far more evolved and advanced. Um, understanding of my own vision through the process of going through the last five years. When we first started, I thought I had a vision for what I thought a great gallery could be with a different perspective on things and just going through the process of trying to do something so different than what other galleries were doing in terms of the organization of the gallery and how we were going to present ourselves and all that stuff. Okay. Uh, you know, it was like making a painting. There was the push and pull. I had to give and collaborate and learn and uh, about not just what I wanted, but what I thought that I was doing versus what I was actually doing and
4: mm-hmm.
3: just paying attention to to that sort of thing. So, I don't know. I have a pretty... I can be very opinionated sometimes... For as uh, yeah, as ridiculous of a person I am, I have very specific um, ideas about certain certain things.
0: So, what um, is your curator- curatorial ethos then? I mean, like overall, what are you looking? I want to create to experiences
3: represent? for people. Okay. Surely, I mean, if the idea of secular awe is to engage the great mystery. Hmm. Um, and and find a way to be excited about it, in the same way that like going to a Catholic mass and smelling the incense and listening to someone speak in Latin and not understanding a word and like you know offerings of roses to the Virgin Mary and all these weird things that are going on uh, in a religious way can get you into that that hypersensitive state of of connection to the great mystery. I feel like a gallery is a great opportunity to bring people in in a secular way and get them to feel that way by looking at the artwork
1: right. or at least putting well,
3: beautiful. really beautiful artworks together so that they transcend the some of their parts and get you into that higher higher state of consciousness without right. having to get too deep into spirituality or the logistics of, like, uh, you know, canon and stuff in, in religious contexts and things. People can come in and have to have a higher... A higher consciousness experience, I think, is what I my the ultimate goal of every show that I do is. That's
1: an yeah, example. I think yours do that. Absolutely. Like I, I'm thinking about the latent content, you know.
3: Latent content sh- was a fun show because that's a great show. Latent content, I would, I would, uh, I am uh, mostly making it up as I go along. But uh, my favorite opera in the world is a Mozart's uh, Magic Flute. Yeah. And if, I don't know if you know, but like most of the work that Mozart did was commissioned by aristocracy and kings and was performed for like the super wealthy or insiders in the music world of, of um, you know Vienna and, and Germany and stuff like that at the time. Um, but the one, the one major piece that he did that was for the people was the Magic Flute, which I think is just his best one of all. It's got the Queen of the Night aria. Yeah, I spent years learning how to whistle that, by the way. So, in another uh, podcast, i you whistle you the entire us right hour. Now? We're no. waiting. No, no, no.
0: <laughs> We have time. I'm a big fan.
3: But, but the, the point was, he was trying to create something that would transcend any work that he did for pure commission based uh, aristocratic work. Um, Which does damage the purity of something, it has to. well, But life. also make it accessible for people who don't know anything about. Music, or don't know anything right. about um, art, yeah. but know what they like, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Um,
0: so how does that relate to the latent content analysis? Well, show?
3: that show. I mean, if you, I don't know who listens to this podcast, but the Lodge Gallery has odd hours, <laughs> so there's the daytime crew of the Lodge. So when people come through in the daytime, it's typically art world people—people people who found us online through a listing or a press or something, or been to a show before. But at nighttime, there's this whole other life to it where it's people who come through, and there's probably hundreds of people at night that come through. Right. Yeah. Um, and many of them know what's going on in the art world. They're coming from other gallery openings or the new museum or what have you. But there's always like a, a good, heavy 50% chunk of people who walk through there have probably never been to a gallery before
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah. um, or, muse- or care about art or museums. And uh, shows like that, I want to create experiences that people who are in the know can walk in and enjoy on a certain level, and people who don't care about the know can walk in and still be sort of captivated and pulled out of the moment and lost for a second in wonder I've and I've definitely mystery. Yeah.
0: seen that happen, yeah. Like somebody yeah. just walking through, passing through, and they they have to stop.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I find it difficult to say some of the things that I say about the art world because... I still have to work in it, and I have great respect for all of the people who are trying to just do something good and contribute to the larger you know, cultural history of the art world. Mm-hmm. Um, kudos to everyone who's trying, because the world needs you. But uh, I, do, I do think that the art world can uh, become a little bit pretentious and obnoxious and self-inclusive and uh, arrogant. Circle jerk it's a big giant circle jerk the business of the art world <laughs>
1: and i like i liked what you said about it's just
3: liars lying to each other about lying i mean most of it but i mean isn't it true about everything i i mean i don't know that you could say that about politics you could say that about business but i think of on a kind. certain
1: level the art world is more susceptible to it because of that i don't know it's a cliche but kind of emperor's new clothes idea which i i like your your curation cuz it doesn't really fall into that so much where, like, I think so many great, truly great arts, like we mentioned Steinbeck before, simple stories that are direct for everyone, but you could also read his description of the Salinas Valley and, and learn a lot about life if you're into pretensions, you know Look, what I'm saying? I'm,
3: I, I could easily consider myself an art snob in a way because I'm very, I'm, I'm really pretty
4: yeah, Even the stuff taste. that I like,
3: I probably only like a third of that artist's work. Yeah. You know, I, I'm like, I, I mean, I went to international schools. I, I, went, I you know, have a undergrad and, and master's degrees in art history and painting. I mean, there's so many reasons why I should just be another one of these people. But, like, I just don't feel it. Maybe it's that, maybe it was that uh, connection I had growing up with the people that I was a little bit more removed from from maybe the direction that everybody else had been trying to go to, you know, the school that I went to, everybody wanted to go to like Ivy league schools and study and money. And I was always just interested in culture and people and would wander by myself alone through villages and try and communicate with people about things that had nothing, nothing to do with what most people would probably try and communicate, you know, just learning about that kind of stuff. I don't know if it informed later in my life now, but like, I feel like, Uh, if there's going to be any future for or any hope for the art world outside of it turning into a used car salesman lot, um, it's going to have to be by lowering those pretensions and going out there and communicating directly to everybody about... This. I don't think, I don't see a reason why, you may make shit paintings, but if you, if you don't, if you never studied painting in your life, and you didn't care, and you're 50 years old, and you start going in and creating rituals for yourselves, right. and exploring, going on the inward journey, um, there's only good that can come of of that, and it's not, so some, it's not a path that's exclusive to people who have an art history education, or like studied at SVA, or Pratt Institute, right it's right. something that everybody can do themselves uh, as a sort of form of self-therapy and self-exploration.
1: Well, you're kind of championing something really necessary. I mean, I think of when I when I go to a, a like the new, new museum or other museums with with family and relatives, they'll be like asking me why why is this artwork good. And by, with all sincerity, they're not I'm there's not a cynical edge to it. Just like an honest question. And you you put a Beatles song on and no one's ever been like, why is this song good? Yeah. It's like that song hits you and it hits everyone. So, But it's even good.
3: great composers say that the Beatles, that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were brilliant songwriters, Absolutely. right? But so also they, some guy who doesn't even know who Paul McCartney and or, or John Lennon are is like, wow, that song rocks. It's that Steinbeck
1: rubric. It works yeah. on... I'm gonna have to go back and read Steinbeck.
3: He keeps like bringing it up,
4: but it
1: does. It works on all those levels. Whereas I think art, the art that you're selecting, does as well. And unfortunately, I see a lot of that not being picked. It gets more on the more the elitist side. That doesn't. That my you know relatives of mine will be asking why is this why is this one good. I
3: don't want to get too uh too focused on uh, the New York Academy of Art because I could certainly like pull out examples from other places but um since it would be the the place to make the most sense i I find that just recently even uh and it wasn't always like this with the academy but there's just been this generation after generation of artists who come out of there who make work that's so visually captivating that it will lower anyone's guard so that so that they can load the content with whatever they want and drop, get people to drop their defenses and then they'll stand there and and maybe gleam 20% of what the artist intended in terms of like emotional or visceral or or conceptual content into it. But they'll still, they'll still stand in front of it. Whereas like uh, some of the more, um, some, two experimental conceptual things or, Things that are fall too far into into abstraction, and I don't mean formal abstraction. I just mean abstract thought, thinking about well that how you to have to explain that you have to explain all this yeah. stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, it's like the message comes in through the back door, of whatever they're trying to communicate. The, they've, it's they've the only way sort of for people to learn. I think so too. I agree hundred percent.
3: You're a teacher; you yeah. must know that. I mean, there's there's just only one way you can get people to learn, is it's to make it entertaining for them.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, so like
3: the last show, latent content that that, sh- Allison's work would not have worked in any other show. I've been trying to show her work for five years. Okay,
0: uh, yeah, and it, like it was impossible. Yeah, it was just, it was it really frustrating. interesting how you chose the artist for that show. Like,
3: well, like some of it, like Art Arturo's work, is it they're like magic. Yeah. So people stand in front of them. They like don't care. a magic care. trick or? The magic trick. It is, it is a magic, magic trick. trick yeah. It's I mean, a total totally magic is. trick. That's exactly mm-hmm. what it is. It's Heron of Alexandria, you know, yeah, like tricking people. Um, by the way, if you don't know who Heron of Alexandria is, my favorite artist of all time. Oh, really? Go so check him out. He, was, he, wouldn't have considered, he probably would have considered himself an engineer, but his job was um, to go around to Roman temples, and create miracles. He was a miracle maker. He invented the steam engine 2,000 years before it was reinvented later on. He created brass spheres with two nozzles, one on each side, would fill them with water and then boil the water inside the sphere. And when the steam came out of the sphere, it came out of the nozzles, which would go this way and that way, and it would make the sphere spin. And, Uh. And this way, he could connect it to a series of gears that would do things like you'd show up at a temple... And with a bunch of like animal fat from your sacrifice or what you were going to bring as a sacrifice to the gods, throw it onto a giant fire, for example, and the fire would burn super bright. And other people would throw their shit on the fire and the fire would burn brighter. The hotter the fire would get slowly when it got to a capacity, the temple doors would just magically open by themselves when the God god was appeased with the amount of the offering. Right. But what was really going on is underneath the giant fire cauldron out in front of the temple underground was one of Heron of Alexandria's machines that would slowly boil and get to capacity, it was giving off steam when enough fat was thrown on the fire to make it hot enough to boil the water, which would in turn run a series of gears and make the doors magically open and then the priest would stand there and go you people, you're so fantastic you've appeased the god (laughs) he's opened the doors to the temple let's all go inside and see more of this crazy shit (laughs) <laughs> Why am I suddenly
0: seeing you as wow. the priest who's saying that? <laughs> 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 and the artists are all the, the people oh who are creating. Don't this knock those illusion. priests.
3: For as much as the priests needed money to live, and for people to, you know, make their offerings and pass around the collection plate and stuff like that, they 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 do serve a purpose to a population of people who don't believe they have it within themselves to. F- to engage those mysteries on their own. They give them mystery. They give them wonder. And Um, it's a fallacy to
1: say that God doesn't exist in human
0: ambition.
1: Well, I mean, for me, that that
3: all all depends on what your definition of God is. But certainly there's no doubt in my mind that uh, we are limited to five senses in our physical forms and that there is a great mystery. And if you want to call that great mystery that's only perceivable through our limited amount of senses, God, then I'm fine with that. I suppose you could call them lots of other things too. But maybe yeah. maybe like all, your shows all, are trying to. I suppose to, would be a good word.
1: Yeah, all like get get in touch with those, expand those senses in your in the shows you curate. You know, like you were talking about almost having a temple experience when you go into a gallery, like, heightening senses, becoming aware.
3: Well, that's why my own work was like that when I did the installations and stuff. It was, like, flashing lights and organic things, and there was a life and death about it all. And, like, I wanted people to feel like I may not understand the story that's going on, but I'm, like, fascinated by this. And it just... When you're fascinated with something, like... I don't know. You guys go to museums, too. You're, like... You see a painting, and you're fascinated whether it's something you saw in a book when you were a kid or something brand new, and you're just you're looking at it and you're in that moment and again, everything reduces to the singularity of the now and there's no past, there's no Like future. a sneeze. Like a sneeze. Like, <laughs> right. like an extended sneeze. <laughs> I read, or an uh, orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> fait bien. It's good to get it out.
2: <laughs> uh, I read a, I think it was a Wayne Dyer thing um, where he was saying, you know, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're like spirits having a human experience. human experience. experience. Right. Oh, man. And yeah. that sounded so so much better because that means you're not limited to all this physical reality you know you, you, there's so much more in a person yeah. than just that
3: that's okay. so funny that was a very that's very close to the inspiration for latent content which okay. was the, just the last show I did there but like um, there's uh, Wang Zi do you know who he is? no Wang Zi I mean there's many ways to pronounce his name but he was from about 200 300 BC China philosopher mm. uh, he had a dream that he was a butterfly and it was so real I think I brought this up at the panel discussion. If any of, any of you guys were there, but like he oh, had this okay. dream that he was a butterfly that was so real right. and so visceral right. um, oh, that when he woke up, it made him question the nature of reality. And he wondered, in this great essay he wrote about it, like, "Am I a ma- Was I a man dreaming that I was a butterfly, or am I now a butterfly dreaming that I'm a man?" Yeah,
0: that's mm. the. And what evidence every do I time. have?
3: And he like tried to psychoanalyze himself like many, many like thousands of years before that even happened, but like. I wonder that all the time.
0: Well, that's the whole existential sense of awareness, you know, the awareness of existence, you know. We're here, and then once you realize that you're here, you wonder about the alternative of not being here and where else you could be.
3: Jean-Paul Sartre's great Catch-22, which is like the only way to test reality and find out if you're really here is to kill yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's the the only real choice you have in this world uh, on a moment-to-moment basis whether or not to just end it because yeah. you don't have enough information to prove or disprove that anything else is happening but the right. one thing that you know that you can do is turn it off. Yeah. Right? Mm. right? Yeah. It's kind of a bleak, dark existence but the downside and why I call it the Catch-22 is that like... You they,
0: can't come back. <laughs> well, no. Once you
3: killed yourself, you, you yeah. You, there's no way to. You can't.
0: <laughs> no way to come back and check. Document
3: that and write it down and check. Yes, we should check. probably to, say that we are not condoning. <laughs> it. Yeah, no, no. Please don't,
2: do not do not, not, not killing yourself. Go uh, uh, oh, no, I, I do condone reading uh,
3: Sartre, if I'm even pronouncing his name correctly. Sartre.
1: Sartre. Sartre. I had, <laughs> I had, I where had where. a personal experience with him when uh, you know his his whole. Uh, concept of living in bad faith, you know? <laughs> and and I it, to this day I'm like holy shit, like every day I just live in constant bad faith.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we all do because what's the alternative?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this goes back to, you know, uh, what you were saying before of just do, taking that dive within. Yeah. And that's that's one of the other outlets that you can take is the scary place inside, which is, which, is, which is more infinite than what you know, your physical self is. Well, and it's, the, it's the reason from... we're not
1: dogs barking at the door, you know? We have more capacity. Are we not? <laughs> are we no, not? I don't think we are. because we dog... not men? We are devos. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I just uh, popped into my head. We're aware of our impending death, you know? And yeah. we, we have options within that, that the dog just aware of that moment, like, shit, my owner left doesn't have any of that you know and what what a sort of beautiful thing where it's the realm of art and it's the realm of ritual and all that but what an existential burden that's really too heavy for a lot of us to exist in you know so that's where
2: drinking and substances and And
0: making art and and making art and making (laughs) art and all that comes in
2: um ex Mechana.
3: oh i love that movie
2: no it's spoilers. Have you,
3: uh, have you seen it?
2: No. Oh, you oh, can oh, spoil it, I I Ty. Okay, yeah. well, we're well, years, we're so, years out. Attention spoilers. Right.
3: So there were... Um, Donald Trump becomes president and everyone <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> oh I know, it's impossible to believe. Yeah, so he
2: created uh, a bunch of these uh, AI robots and in the beginning what would happen is once they truly achieve um, you know, sentient, they would just kill themselves. Yeah, but the robots just couldn't handle that you know that thought well yeah and to uh to create one that uh actually you know just kept um on living yeah he had to turn off some some of the mechanisms
3: yeah right. well it's
2: ernest beckers denial
1: of death you know once you're in that situation you you just throw a bunch of defenses at that constant thought to right. manage life on this planet, you know? What does it mean? Uh, And all uh, of 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 us in this room, or down the block, or in this whole, you know, the whole universe... We're all here, and we don't know what happens at the end.
3: No, it's totally. I know
0: what happens at the end, but I can't you tell you. do?
3: I don't, don't right, want to give right, you, right. No,
0: not going to give right. you You any are the only You're person story. in the world that I believe. That <laughs> you
3: probably do, Kim. Kim <laughs> probably
4: does. Well, I will to, tell
3: you this, that like, whatever happens at the end, <laughs> that like all of you, and uh, I would hope myself included, and all the creative people that I know, um, are building towards uh, a legacy, I don't believe in an afterlife, and I tend to be more scientific. In fact, I probably could spend another two hours just talking about transhumanism and my fascination with that as an oh, evolution God. out of like the post-religious, future secular world.
4: Right. Uh,
3: that's a whole. Whole other kind of conversation, but you're leaving behind to a be legacy continued. to to contribute visually, psychologically, philosophically, that's right. spiritually, all these things as an artist that you're doing on your inward journey. The like the relics and the refuse that you leave behind but that's are why, all inspirations well, for the next generation. To that's lives. why you see cura- immortality.
0: That,
1: that's yeah. why you curate well, and that's why I I don't paint what you know. I paint try to honestly to myself. That's why. I like this group of people we're around because you take that with a lot, a heavy dose of responsibility and it might not always have the commercial payout on the other end, but you're looking for just what you said, you know, something to pass through and that's a heavy responsibility and something authentic something authentic anytime
3: you try and do anything authentic in this world or or make progress or steps forward in in some new creative vision the world will try and stomp that shit out it
1: will it absolutely will and so there's
3: resistance to it but you know it's like you guys, like are you, if, if somebody said that you don't like your paint, like the one painting that you did, are you going to stop painting? Never. It's a compulsion and it's a drive. I don't, I don't have it in me to stop. I don't know what I would do without it. If I had stopped curating, I'd probably go back to painting. If I couldn't paint, I'd make more installations. I, yeah. I mean, I have ideas for that stuff, too. There's just only so much time yeah, it's in like life. A motor so much time. I feel right now with the opportunity that I have, the best good that I can do is doing that, what I'm doing, I suppose. And yeah. like learning about what it is that I'm doing as I go through it.
0: Right, it's all a learning process constantly, right? According to um, the many interacting worlds theory of Professor Howard Wiseman, a physicist at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia, and and his compatriots. Probably a
3: friend of David Chalmers. I'm not sure. Shout out to David Chalmers.
4: (laughs) Um,
0: Anyway, other universes exist in untold number and have an influence on each other. So this idea about, like, there's only one you and there's not enough time, maybe there are more of you. Uh,
3: Well, I will tell you I'm familiar with the infinite universes theory and the infinite worlds and and infinite dimensions and stuff like that. I think about it all the time because uh, infinity is not a number. It is the totality of an infinite possibility of every variation and if that's true, then there's more possible variations that I don't exist than I do exist. If you, once you exhaust all the different possibilities of every choice I ever made from moment to moment to second to second throughout my entire life right. and create an entire world based around every one of those alternate variations on a theme, uh, you're still left with an infinity of possibilities of me not existing at all. And uh, there's no way for those infinities to interact with each other. So, yeah, me as me. There's, I'm, I'm trying to remember the guy... I, I used to talk to J.P. Roy about this one particular thing. There's, there's a, a story by... I, I'm, I'm blanking on who it is. He's, he's also a theoretical physicist or, or something to that effect. But um, the story of, of a, a guy who is going to enter into a teleportation machine. Uh-huh. And he knows this about the teleportation machine, that once you get inside of it, your body and your mind will be completely destroyed. The you, that you, will be gone. But we're going to scan you down to the neural mapping of your brain and when you appear in the teleportation machine on the other side you won't know that you're not you you won't right. be you because you were destroyed in the teleportation machine but this clone of you that's produced on the other side will think it's you it'll have all your memories it'll know your wife as intimately as you the know your wife and your family link. and your kids and all these things yeah. and it's like going into that do you, how, how much do you care that you're going to be destroyed if you know that it's not you how you are you Right. right? So if there's an infinite number of me's out there and an infinite number of universes, sure, I can comfort myself by saying, hey, look, if it doesn't work in this universe, there's an infinite number of me out there doing whatever they're doing in the world. Right. Um, but they're not me.
4: Yeah.
3: Right. I'm me in this world right now. But then it's and like ship enough. of Theseus but That's all that there way. is.
2: Like what is an essence of anything? There's a cartoon out there called Rick and Morty. I, ah, I love, love Rick, Rick and <laughs> Morty. Pickle Rick! <laughs> <laughs> um...
3: Yeah, all, all, Rick and Morty is great. And the ship of Theseus is a great story. I actually talk about that story a lot.
2: Yeah, because I mean, You're it's a ship like, of Theseus yourself,
3: been? right? Every seven years, every cell in your body is regenerated. Allegedly. Do you know the story of the ship of Theseus?
4: No.
3: So Theseus' ship is the, the Odyssey, the, the, the ship that the, from the Odyssey, right? It travels right. around the world. Um, isn't it the ship that Jason and the Argonauts were on, too? Or is that a, yeah, a I think different so. one? Either way, the ship of Theseus is this great mythological ship. And or John and Cash's song One Piece at a time. Ah oh, <laughs> shit, I never made that association. It is, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what it is. Yeah. It's the same thing. Oh my like, god, I love that guy. I freaking love that guy. The um, So the ship of Theseus is this idea that like there's a ship, let's say, it doesn't even have to be the ship of Theseus. We can just say that there's a ship, right? And over time it gets repaired. And every time a plank has to come off the ship and be replaced by a new plank, the, the original plank is saved and set aside in a barn, right? Okay. Um, let's say that like over so many years, so many planks on that ship have to be replaced that you have quite a collection of the original planks from the original ship over here. So you start to put the ship, the, the original planks from the original ship all back together again until you have two ships. Okay. Now, one of them is still the functioning ship of Theseus with all of its you know additions and repairs and everything like that. It still says the- ship of Theseus on the back. It still goes out on its adventures, but not one piece of it is the original ship of Theseus whereas now you have this other ship that's been made of all the original parts that you've replaced on the ship of Theseus to create this second ship. Which ship is the ship of Theseus? Yeah, right. which one is which? Which one is which? Which is the real ship of Theseus? There's, there's another variation on this I think where it's like um, some famous cowboy gets, you know, sh- who, who's the guy who gets shot for aces and eights? Is that Jesse James? Aces and I don't know. I don't Whatever, know. Let's say it's Jesse James, right? Jesse James gets shot playing poker in a bar, makes it the most famous bar in this town, right? Um, many, many, many years later, uh, the bar moves across the street. So, like, th- let's say the name of the, the bar is the OK Corral or the OK mm-hmm. Cantina or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. And, like, it closes here, new business, opens up across the street. Hey, we're the same business. We just moved across the street. Um, and someone comes to town and says, I want to see where Jesse James was killed, do you take them to the bar where Jesse James was killed or do you take them to the actual physical site where Jesse James is killed, which maybe now is a pharmacy or uh, Uh, 7-Eleven?
2: Which is, where did Jesse James die?
3: Did he die in the bar that's been moved across the street or did he, is Uh. it the physical location? What's real, anyways, is the point here.
0: Right. Yeah, interesting. That makes me think of The Man in the High Castle. Did you watch that or read it? I did not. It's a Philip K. Dick novel. And it's so intriguing, but... um, It's the idea that uh, America lost World War II and that Japan is in charge of the United States and the Nazis are also in charge of a certain part of the United States.
3: That's what I've heard. They've divided it in two, right?
0: Right. And um, the Japanese in this book have a word for objects from that period of time that have a certain amount of authenticity. And I can't remember Mm. what the word is, but... It has those objects, even though a, can't, they have a way of like understanding in a philosophical way somehow, that those are the authentic objects, and that they can tell the difference between this gun that looks exactly like this other gun. It's not the same gun because it doesn't have that authentic
3: thing thing
0: huh. which is unknowable. The history. The, oh, that's what it is, historiosity. Thank you. Yeah, huh. so the object has historiosity. And the value of the object is in its historiosity. <laughs> yeah, it so that's kind of interesting, the actual value of the object.
3: That's interesting. Well, I wonder sort of the value of a human
1: being is your memory and collected experience.
0: You right. Know? It's like, not, not, that, it's, not that it's there, but the journey that it took you to get there. And I think that artwork is... Very much that way, too. Like, it's artwork has turned into an object uh, now, but
1: I
3: know. couldn't point to a Rubens painting and say what part he painted. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, yeah. and who knows how much he painted if he painted anything on it at all. It's yeah. like right. that was, I guess it depends on the cultural traditions that the paintings come out of. Some um, of it was first, Van Dyke well, it, it painted Painting Classical uh, Asian painting is easier to, to catalog because so few people. Uh, were blessed with the education to be able to read and write. So, you know, you know that if you're looking at, like, a, a piece of classical calligraphy, that it certainly can only be this certain number of people who had access. Uh, and you can... you can
0: Right, you can narrow it you down. You can narrow it
3: down. Um, they certainly didn't have, like, the kind of master-apprentice... They did, but it was a totally different kind of master-apprentice thing. There would never have been, like... Uh, a painting that was done by a majority of apprentices with, like, few touches by the master, and they called it a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the West, that's totally acceptable all through the Renaissance. Right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: So what is authentic, then?
3: Yeah, it's so funny. I've had this conversation with Keith many times. (laughs) What the difference is, uh, what's between authentic and um, genuine?
0: Right. Can you
3: guys explain to me what the difference between genuine and authentic is? There is uh, a, intention? There's a gut feeling, right? Intenten? But you can't
0: prove intention.
2: Maybe? Because if I call if look it up on, on the internet? some... You know, to an artist and say bullshit, like, that's not what you meant. You know, you're saying something and you're or whatever. It's like, no, it's not that. And they'll argue so with that's, you.
0: So it's ingenuine in that case. Right. But it's authentic nonetheless?
2: Well, they authentically made it.
3: I think that that's the thing, is that like genuine is the real deal and authentic is a... Uh, it's more possible like a simulation, or authentic is like like authentic 18th century, which means that like I made it now, but it's I made it using the tools and everything that someone would have made it in the 18th right. century. Whereas right. a genuine 18th century pistol would have been made in the 18th century.
0: Right. Or Something yeah. like that.
3: I think is the difference between the two. Although, you know, I still like, like
0: a forged painting. Like this is.
3: Yeah, like maybe, and you can get something
1: authenticated where you can't really get it.
3: Genuine, Genuinitated. Genuine <laughs> <laughs> Historiosity. <laughs> <laughs> <Did
1: you
0: think, laughs> history-
1: this has been like so fascinating. We should have you back, Jason. Yeah, I'd love have, to have, have another conversation. And, and it's, uh, pretty. We'll
3: amazing. talk about instead of talking about the past, we'll talk about the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. yes. we'll the future. The back to the, to the future.
2: Yeah, and all that good stuff.
3: If you're really into that, there's my favorite person to talk to or to listen to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, the philosophy of mind and, and consciousness and future of transhumanism and stuff. Uh, his name is Dr. Stuart Hameroff. He's an anesthesiologist who takes people's consciousness away for a living, gives it back to him. Oh, um, he's collaborated yeah. with some of the best uh, theorists of mind and uh, theoretical physicists and um, philosophers, contemporary philosophers on the subject of theory of mind. Um, and they have this great idea about uh, nanotubules and quantum... Um, singularity, reductions of the we're talking about infinite possibilities these people believe that what consciousness literally is, is this idea that from a microsecond to microsecond basis uh, there's every possible infinite outcome that could happen but you you, by observing reality through your senses Mm -hmm. is reducing it all to singularities on a microsecond to microsecond basis like Heisenberg It is Heisenberg's experiment, but you're doing it on a microsecond. That's all consciousness is: is reducing infinite possibilities to singularities, infinitely and infinitely. By possibility and infinitely. Collapse. Yeah, you're collapsing. You're collapsing the possibility to onto one definitive thing that you're observing to, by observing it. There's something
1: back to religion, kind of Calvinistic and predetermined about that idea. Like I think even current. Uh, psychoanalysts and stuff would say that you have no choice in any split second on what your cells are going to do. Like, it's all predetermined oh, to what, a degree.
0: That drives me insane. What are
3: those guys? What's
0: yeah, I who can't was, stand the idea that everything is already figured out for me.
3: Who was the lawyer from the Scopes Monkey Trials? Do you remember uh, what his name is? Yes, I do. That um, southern guy was like, oh, listen here, see? Oh, uh,
1: shit. Uh, do
3: you remember his name?
1: Yes, I do, but I can't. I'm gonna, look it, uh, I'm gonna t- look it up. Pull it up, Tanner. It's gonna it's gonna Scopes drive you monkey out.
3: trials. Here's some information about Scopes trial. Hey, thanks,
0: Siri. <laughs> Speaking of the digital age.
1: Yeah, well, it's been a hot button topic. I mean, certainly since the dawn of man and, and John Calvin's this huge moment in religious history where
3: uh Clarence says, Darrow. Yeah, Clarence so, Darrow. Hang on. So I, I, uh, okay. Uh, so Clarence Darrow, before he became famous for the Scopes Monkey trial, was famous for another court case called Leopold and Loeb. Okay. And Leopold and Loeb were these two boys who murdered someone. And I don't need to get into the details of the murder and stuff like that. They were definitively guilty. And what he was trying to do wasn't to get them off, it was to keep them from being executed and give them life in prison instead of being executed. Uh-huh. So um, his argument was, um, uh, evolutionary predestination towards certain behavioral patterns, and he convinced the jury to keep them alive and not execute them because he convinced enough of the people on the jury that based on uh, their genetic predisposition, based on the context of the world that they grew up in, based on um, their experience with uh, the legal system and their socioeconomic class, that they were predestined to end up committing this crime. Right. That everything yeah. in the world was oriented to, to drive them into the possibility that this would happen. The whole yeah. nature, and so, like, nature who are you supposed nurture. to blame? Are you supposed to blame poor Leopold and, and Loeb, who don't know any better? Or are you supposed to blame the culture and, and the community that, like, that brought them to the point where they had no other choice but to do this? Yeah. And, like, it so confused slip, enough people, slip. confused enough people that he, he won. Yeah. And th- with that fame he was able to go along and, and and argue the Scopes Monkey Trials. But the Scopes Monkey Trial
1: was just a total it was like a it was a farce. It wasn't even a real thing. Oh, no, it was
3: ridiculous. It
1: was just like a spectacle,
3: you know. Well, so much of, of that guy's clear, career, Clarence Darrow, interestingly enough, is the PT Barnum thing. Like he had Absolutely. a very specific vision for what he thought he thought how the mind worked, how science worked, how the future was going to like separate those that backwards thinking mentality about things and embrace the the scientific approach to the mind so yeah everything from like predestination toward or pre whatever whatever the word is towards being predisposed towards criminal activity or the idea of just arguing evolution I just think he liked to argue what people thought was an impossible argument and win yeah,
0: devil, the
3: Devil's Advocate. The Devil, the Devil's Advocate. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I like being that too. It's sometimes.
0: one of my favorite things. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's. that's Are great both
0: because I never see that anything is one way or the other. There's I always. I think a the gray only time
2: part. it's uh, the two perspectives. It makes sense to believe in destiny and fate. is when something really shitty happens to you and uh there's a name for it <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like well, why did i really get hit by car to car and i can no longer walk like you have to make yourself believe that it happened for a reason well i'll Otherwise, tell you you're gonna go amorph or you just need to rethink that you're
0: amorph what
2: Fatty, that's the that's the phrase for that yeah it's the word amorphity amorphity
3: more fatigue. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know what that is. It Amor. looks like French, but also Italian So that, not Italian or Latin. So that you explains
0: Latin? the things that are bad that happen to you? No,
3: it's just kind of... Is it bad love? It's, it's kind, kind of, of that loving the that fact, fact
2: that like it's you're fat. totally okay
3: with
0: fate.
3: Ah. Uh, like, I, uh, I think a lot of these ideas well, about... The Buddha um,
0: says that we're not in control, so don't worry uh, about it.
3: It's Nietzsche. <laughs> oh, it's Nietzsche? Yeah, it's said. Well,
2: that one, he said, wants nothing to be different, not forward, not backward, not in all eternity, not merely bear what is nece- necessary, still less conceal it, but
3: love it. This is going to sound really ah oh, so be lost fate, sure. I think yeah. that most yeah. of of Western philosophy is tainted by this idea that, or uh, tainted by a presumption of what the purpose of life is. Yeah. and I think that from all the great philosophers of Western history. The purpose of life is to be happy? Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, I'll reduce, reduce pain, increase
1: happiness. Seems reduce to pain, be and increase happiness. I don't think yeah. that the
3: purpose of life is to be happy. No, I think that the purpose would of just... life is to be useful, and through being useful yeah. in some capacity, you can find happiness.
2: Yes. Because all your body wants is to eat popcorn, watch Netflix, <laughs> and have sex. And that's pretty much it. Or maybe not popcorn, but you know, whatever. Your body will be very happy with that, it likes
3: to sneeze. It's much <laughs> like
2: but, but it is I'm
1: miserable be a misnomer. I just feel like this is something I'm missing that. That. If i missing. I, I will sneeze
3: a, a lot more. more orgasms that. are a great replacement for sneezing, <laughs> <orgasm>, by the <laughs> way. They last just a little bit longer. But I'm always more Same present in an orgasm than a sneeze.
1: Back to that. <laughs> I'm always hyper aware at that point, but I think like a prolonged state of Netflix popcorn and sneezing or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> is Yo, you want to get back to the right place and Netflix and sneeze? You want to back you Netflix and sneeze.
4: Netflix and sneeze. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, it's like you know, like the Buddha, like uh, Buddha state sneezing. If <laughs> you really listen to Jason Patrick Vogel, he's got a lot to say on the subject. We're gonna sneeze out all our desires, yeah. baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I have a beautiful, beautiful idea all of a sudden.
0: Thanks so much for coming and chatting with Jason, me
3: today. No, hey guys, thank you uh, and, again so much for having me. I appreciate And I have it to all.
0: say, it's nothing to sneeze about. <laughs> oh, nothing to <laughs> Ooh,
3: yeah. clap for that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: clap.
1: Right. Yay, yeah, we did it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> survived, and I didn't make a fool of myself yet.
0: Well, we really, really enjoyed it. That was it, so good. So we'll have to
1: come I love back.
2: that. Yeah, we, we got to have you back. Yeah. Thank you, guys. This is no. an interesting no. story. All of you oh, guys just scratching the surface. Oh. Yeah.
3: Also, this guy's going to be in a show opening on November 15th at the Lodge Gallery. It's called Yay. The Outer Burrows. Yes. Um, oh,
2: yeah, I
0: didn't give you a chance to talk about urban
3: it. Urban landscape painting. Oh, very cool. Yeah. You're going to awesome. love it. Tom's a great artist. Yay! Yay. <laughs> come on down to the lodge. <laughs> we've got everything you want. we got paintings, we've got sculpture and collage. So come on down to the lodge. The yeah. lodge so well right there. Oh my God. <laughs> shameless P.T. Varnemann. Sorry, guys. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. All right. That was so good. It's I that. love that talk. Yeah. More. I, I yeah. do want to come back and talk to you a little bit more.
0: We had a great time yes. talking to Jason Vogel. You can find out more about Jason on his website, jasonpatrickvogel.com and Lodge Gallery at thelodgegallery.com. You can find us on our website, artgrindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to Art Grind Podcast. Stay on the grind while we feed your mind.